Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Take a few steps back. But you, you ain't got the answer, Sway! <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I've done too much podcasting this week. I'm beat. I have didn't have the energy to come up with a question. So why don't you ask me a question? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, does it bother you at all that Kanye West said anti-Semitic things? Um, As a Jew, I mean. Given that we control like world finance and the media, like I think we'll we can handle this. Like I think we'll be okay. <laughs> you're feeding into the <laughs> you're feeding into the conspiracies. It, it shouldn't uh, be something uh, you know for us to worry about too much. Um, yeah, know, no, like Deathcon three, like that's <laughs> Death you know it, it's not as bad as Deathcon one or five, but it still prob- might be pretty bad. It's a mediocre one, yeah. you know? Like, pick an extreme. <laughs> like, I feel like he was fence-sitting on this one. Like, that's constant. Yeah. And death, if you're going to come cons- at the Jews, you best not miss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, we laugh to keep from crying. Um, uh, I, I I'm watching, just laughing, not to keep from crying. Yeah, okay. um, I was actually genuinely curious whether even a part of you was, like, bothered by it. Um, you know, he's in or, that or, category of people that... Uh, like he can say anything. Like he could say that, like my daughter is this <laughs> whore or something like that. And it'd be and like, yeah, but it's kind of like it's you know whatever <laughs> you know. Where I'm not going to get all indignant about something that you know a, a guy who's in that phase of just a little bit kind of bordering on crazy. Jordan Peterson is actually like this for me too. <laughs> like I'm just not going to get worked up about it. You know? Yeah, you. I can never work you up about anything Jordan Peterson says. <laughs> no, like, because you just, he's you're so- like. Once they're in that category, it's the objective attitude, you know, it's like just just something to deal with if you have to. But if you don't have to, then then you just leave it alone. Like, I don't think that's going to be bad for Jews that he said that (laughs) there's it's uh, I I think people are worried about the rise of of anti-Semitism. Yeah. And like casual anti-Semitism by people like Kanye is kind of distressing when like in context but like i was watching for some reason like i've been into watching um like boxing on youtube and mm-hmm. i i was reminded that mike tyson has an that amazing uh one man show that he did with spike lee on broadway did mm-hmm. you ever watch that no 
it's really good. I, yeah, I he can, tells the story of his life. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Like a really I, talented, I really interesting like, guy. Yeah. Yeah. I really like about Aside like, from the like sexual assault. Or <laughs> yeah. He discusses he that. that too. Yeah. He does discuss uh, it in the show. Yeah, he does. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. He's it's, very candid about everything. Is this on YouTube um, or something? It is on HBO. Oh, okay. Um, and at some point he doesn't say like, he doesn't blatantly insult Jewish people, but he says like, when Customato, his trainer, died, you know, he's like, I had been already set up with like all of the Jews, like my accountant, my <laughs> lawyer. Like, <laughs> and so I like, and he's talking about when he, he had to like confront, there was this one idiot, like a uh, sm small time gangster who, who got in a fight with Mike Tyson and then actually ended up fighting him. And he's like, and I, and uh, you know, I didn't want to like be uh, Brooklyn, Mike Tyson and get like super upset. So I tried to, to, I tried to channel like the Jew, you know, just be like, <laughs> buddy, buddy, you know, we don't have to deal with it this way. And I'm, <laughs> and, I'm and then he's like, it didn't work for me. So I had to punch. Him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. And I was, I was like, oh yeah, it hits a little different, you know, now that, uh, <laughs> now that Kanye said that he ruined the Mike, he ruined the Mike Tyson joke. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, a good bit. Yeah. But that much more worrying to me is the sort of more anonymous rises of anti-Semitism, like the synagogues getting burned down and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever, I, like that, that's more worrying to me than you know, anything a celebrity says, you know, it's like Mike Mel Gibson. Did I get worked up right. when Mel Gibson like <laughs> went on his rant? No. Cause that's just part of being Jewish. You figure the people are going to uh, do this every so often. I, I've um, told this before, but like anti-Semitism, do you know the definition of anti-Semitism? No. Disliking Jews more than is called for. <laughs> <laughs> You can say that. Uh, <laughs> when I say it, <laughs> I mean you say like so much. Aunt. I don't know why that would be. Uh, like. I I think uh, Kanye West is um, legitimately. If you watch his documentary, uh, the documentary that the three parter that they did, his friend did, like with footage from his whole career, you see his decline into like bipolar, like severe, severely, and it's it's just kind of a shame that. He, like back in the day, somebody who lapsed into that sort of mental illness wouldn't wouldn't have Twitter to like let everybody know how sick they were. Um, but now, like he got banned from Instagram. We'll see if he gets banned from Twitter. But we see everything like live as it's happening. You can see people's meltdowns. Their yeah, and once they do it, if they're in some fucking drugged out stupor and yeah. they tweet something like that, like they can delete it. But like, there's a million yeah. screenshots of it. Yeah, because um, yeah. there's so many people just on high alert for somebody. Like the shit that people probably said that we would never ever know. You know, like oh hear, god, yeah. You, you hear like the Nixon tapes, and you're like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> just the worst, most hateful shit. <laughs> like this is it's just and we only get like little glimpses yeah. into that i'm sure that still goes on you know yeah yeah yep. i mean just think of the shit that we say you know <laughs> like when we're not recording um we didn't say what our episode is about um no right whoa so today <laughs> and actually this isn't even the opening segment there's already an opening segment yeah so uh we have uh, Sam Harris on um, hasn't been on since I think 2019. That was the last one. Well, yeah. Um, and we are going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 
2001, A Space Odyssey. We had a long conversation about it. It hasn't been edited yet, but I remember I, I felt we felt pretty good about it right at the time. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. And uh, yeah, so that's this. Uh, we're, we're excited to bring that to you. Also, in the first segment, we're going to talk a little bit about with Sam the, the pragmatism episode from last time. You know, we knew that it was going to be like a three-hour discussion of 2001, so we tried to cut it short, but um, we think there might be some interesting stuff. Well, and and we learned that uh, Sam used to chase Richard Rorty around. Campus, <laughs> yes. Which I think is worth He called himself like a stalker of Richard <laughs> Ror- Rorty. Um, you know, that's a little bit hard to say, Richard Rorty. It is Richard <laughs> Only now when you said the name of 2001 A Space Odyssey, did I really sit and think about that title, like the subtitle, A Space Odyssey? Because uh, Odyssey, stupid. I was trying to tell you guys this. Uh, I know, I never even, I never connected that. Because uh, a space odyssey sounds dumb. But um, if you connect it to the Odyssey, then. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys were done with Rorty. Uh, but uh, I, you got my email about my my apprenticeship to him. It was, it was we did. It was yeah. quite, I mean, when I say I was a stalker, I, I was a legit stalker. I, I took every course he taught, regardless of its subject matter, just so that I could argue with him about pragmatism. <laughs> so, so, you was, were were you fun at parties, Sam? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because I can totally picture it. Nineteen twenty year old Sam Harris doing that. And he had been ejected. If he ever was in the philosophy department at Stanford, he had been ejected from it. And um, huh. he was in the he was in the comp lit department. It was pretty interesting because he was he was teaching courses on William James and Nietzsche and Foucault and Habermas. And I, I'm not even sure how I got so fixated on him. But once I heard his rap as a pragmatist, I just thought, okay, this is the the nullification of everything I think is true. <laughs> so I just had to. I just had to. Go after him, and he was. I, I mean, to say he was a good sport about it is doesn't even get at it. I mean, he was just really. You you got to think if you've got this 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 vociferous student and you know older student. I was I had been away from I had taken you know ten or eleven years off between my sophomore and junior year, so already I looked like you know the, the very picture of dysfunction in some sense. <laughs> and, and so I'm in his every one of his classes and just hammering him on his core thesis, and you got to think. You you respect that person just a little bit less because I mean this this is his core thesis he thinks it's correct and I am the, the the poster child for not getting the point ultimately yeah. right and and at a great length you know submitting him thirty page term papers and you know, <laughs> why he's wrong and all that but meanwhile he was so he was so willing to engage that I mean he actually the, the relationship was good enough that he was one of the main people I had write a letter to graduate school. So wow. that's yeah. incredible. It was yeah, cool. That is a good yeah. sport. Philosophers are pretty good about like they take it as a real sign of respect that somebody disagrees with them, even, you know, radically. And especially that generation of philosophers, they loved to scrap. And yeah. I think they had enough respect for like students to know that even if a student might not be getting it at the level that they're pitching it, like that's part of the process, you know? Yeah. 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 So you've softened a little bit on his view since? Uh, not much. I mean, I understand it. I, I understand his, I guess, his political project more. I mean, I, I, I understand how, I think at this distance, I understand how tiresome debates about, you know, realism versus anti-realism or pragmatism became for everyone who had been in, in the trenches for, you know, decades. At that point, it was all new to me. 
and I just had endless energy to to try to hit some something like epistemo- epistemological bedrock. Um, but no, I, I still think I, I do think pragmatism contradicts itself. Um, I, I could say why in a pretty in a pretty brief span if if you if you're interested. But I don't know if you guys are done on sure, the topic. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's somewhat analogous to the the knock on relativism that I, I think Tamler, I heard you poo poo in that, uh, or maybe both of you did, just like that that, that relativism performs some kind of uh, self contradiction in purport in, in covertly saying something universal. That's I, I what th- the paper was about that we were discussing. It was okay, a, kind of a reply to that objection. Right. Okay. So I, I think pragmatism is guilty of two covert, at least two covert realistic claims in order to launch its project. I mean, so there, there's a, and you have to listen to Rorty for a long time, or you might have to listen to him for a long time to, to see these explicitly. But the claim with, with pragmatism is that to say, say that something is true, to say that a statement about reality is true, is just to praise how it functions in conversation among people who are adequate to that conversation. It's like the history of our talking about this thing has shown that certain ways of thinking about this thing, whether it's physics or whether it's the natural world or you know viruses or, or anything, mathematics, um, certain claims about this thing are so useful and they so readily uh, uh, engender assent from you know all parties that we just call those those statements true. But... We never, and this, you know, this is probably a, almost a direct quote from Rorty. We never get to compare our descriptions of reality with a piece of undescribed reality. All we're ever dealing in are descriptions of reality. We never encounter, you know, reality outside our language game. Now, so my point would be, so, so, so essentially, he's saying that all forms of knowledge are, in principle, linguistic, right, and, and conceptual. There is no direct contact with the world or anything else. But There's I, no way my, to step outside our lens of language and perception yeah. to evaluate to what extent it corresponds to the real reality, like some sort yeah. of objective, independent reality. Yeah, and it, there's a Habermas quote that he was fond of, which ends with Habermas saying something like, we never step outside the magic circle of our language, right? It's just, it's a, it's just language as far as the eye can see in, in the kind of claims we make about reality and truth. But... My point was, and, and still is, this is this is making, and, and, and then there's another claim that is being made, which relates to the work of Donald Davidson, which is that all language games are in principle inter-translatable, right? We would never find a real language user, um, even if this is a super intelligent alien from a, a, you know another galaxy, uh, Whose cognitive horizons we couldn't fuse with in the fullness of time, like the language. There's a, I, there's a. I forget what I forget. Davidson's term: if we couldn't, in principle, understand it, it couldn't, in principle, be language, right? I mean, that's his something about the almost like the universality of computation argument, uh, but but for language. Yeah. In any case, the idea that all of our knowing is in principle linguistic, and that all language games can be, in the end, made to converge. Those are two, on my account, realistic claims about, the, the, about human knowledge and, and uh, its possibilities. And all you'd have to show is that you know, one or both of those is not true to make pragmatism fall apart. It's, it's actually worse than that. You don't even have to show that they're not true. You just have to show that 
pragmatism is making a, re- a, a realistic claim in order to get its project off the ground. Um, but and, yeah. and my my thing with Rorty, I mean, I was I, I was fresh off the having spent a considerable amount of time on meditation on silent meditation retreats, and you know that was my whole thing. And it, it was obvious to me that not all modes of knowing are linguistic, right? I, yeah, and, but and, I don't see see I don't see that a pragmatist is having to commit to that claim now. Whether Rorty does or Davidson does in some works, I don't know. But I certainly don't think they have to commit to either of those universal claims uh, about language or the intertranslatability of language in order to be a pragmatist. Neither of those things are essential to the view. Um, well, I, th- I think so, they are. We'll just, just take the second one. Yeah. The reason why you can't have another frame of language that is so so much more true, so much more in contact with reality than ours so that we couldn't even understand it. I mean, the reason why you couldn't have aliens that stand in, in re- relation to us the, the way we stand in relation to chickens is because the chicken pragmatists then look ridiculous, right? If you have a bunch of chickens sitting around saying, well, it's all just truth is just a matter of what passes for true in our in our language game. Um, well, we have these super intelligent people walking around and eating chickens who know that's not true, right? And that's, that, was, that was Thomas Nagel's, that was the path Thomas Nagel took to tr- you know, attempting to deflate pragmatism in, I think his book, The Last Word, um, you just you just have to you have to imagine just sort of nested hierarchies of you know competence and to make any local claim of pragmatism look ridiculous. But re- realism has no problem with that at all. Realism just says, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff we don't know and we'll never know and probably aren't competent to know, and yet some suitable mind could know those things. Pragmatism can't really deal with that. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to take us too far afield if I try to reply, respond to that. I don't know, Dave, do you want, do you want to like continue this on pragmatism? I, I imagine you're somewhat sympathetic to what Sam has to say. Yeah, I, I am sympathetic to what Sam has to say. I mean, I, <laughs> I keep, can't shake the ass backward notion of, of, um, of what pragmatism you love that does you fell with, in love with that term. And now Cause like, I used it three times. Said, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, so, so it would be left to you to defend it, Tamler, because I, I think that um, it it fails in some in some some deep ways. It would require just challenging the. This is why I don't think it might be that useful. It would require me challenging like the assumptions that Sam is making about what pragmatism has to commit to, and even just the last thing you say. I mean, I can briefly respond that if pragmatism doesn't have a way to make chickens look ridiculous like i think the pragmatist can say that's that's fine like well, well so but the transcendental perspective opens up when we become the chickens right yeah i mean it's, it's easy to to have a deflationary account a pragmatic deflationary account of actual chickens but if we're in the presence of something we don't understand that's obviously much more competent in all kinds of cognitive ways than we are it just seems delusional for us to say that truth is what passes for just what gets justified in our discourse, right? Um, I mean, yeah. so, I mean, what, what a realist yeah. really wants to be able to say is that certain claims are true, whether or not they can be justified, right? Like there, there are true descriptions of reality that you know I, one could articulate, but they might just be true by accident. You just you can't justify them, but they nevertheless could be true, and it's also possible for many or even all justified statements to be false, right? So it's possible for everyone to be wrong 
about X. But that, but that's exactly what Rorty would say. Like, of course, the realist wants to say that. Right. But that doesn't mean it's the thing to want. But it's, another uh, another say, horizon of cognition, again, you know, a super intelligent yeah. alien race is a thing that that, you know, opens that up where it just becomes very tortured to try to assimilate their competence into to a, into a pragmatic view of our own truth claims. Yeah, I mean, so it actually relates to what we're going to be talking about <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it actually a does. little later. You know, it's funny because I, I know you're waking up app backwards and forwards at this point. I mm. use it every day. I've like gone through a lot of the the practices and like it's literally changed my the way I view the world, like the, how I perceive the world, like when I take a walk is totally different. I just kind of bought into the style, that kind of non-dual approach that you promote and that you have like Adyashanti and Locke Kelly and, um, oh God, I don't, what's the name of the Buddhist nun that you oh, have? Uh, there's, there's two, uh, Jayasara right? and, uh, Jitendria. Yeah. They're both, both awesome. of them. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I actually thought in some ways that the the worldview that gets outlined in their meditations and also your conversations with them was pretty congenial to pragmatism, which is why I thought you might have softened on them. But I get mm-hmm. what you say where, like, there are times where you're experiencing something and it feels like, oh, okay, like the a veil is being lifted and I'm seeing things more clearly, more, I'm seeing things more accurately, not, not as obscured as I was seeing things before, including like the idea of the self and the, the, the self behind the eyes and stuff like that. Forget, forget about just more true. Certainly not, it's not merely linguistic, right? Now it's, it yeah, is, right. it's no, linguistic when you not, talk about yeah. it. In yeah. fact, definitely not uh, linguistic. In fact, non-linguistic, I think right. in a lot of ways, uh, essentially non-linguistic. Where we might differ is whether pragmatism has to commit to any claim about linguistic. Uh, you but know. I think Rorty does. I mean, his he, his he style he, of pragmatism he, does. He really does. And I, I guess that there's another – you could come at this from the opposite direction. I think I hit Rorty with this as well, which is that you could ask, well, what, what happens if pragmatism itself proves to be unpragmatic, right? And realism is more hmm. pragmatic. It, it, and, and so then what happens to pragmatism there? Um, yeah. And I, in fact, this is actually interesting because the the um, there's a point I make in in my first book, The End of Faith. Uh, Saeed Qutb, uh, Osama bin Laden's favorite philosopher. I mean, he's like the the father of modern jihadist thinking. Um, he actually thought pragmatism would spell the end of Western civilization. He, he thought, okay, he, he, look at these morons who can't actually agree that anything they value or think is true, uh, we're just going to roll over these people, right? Which is pr- a pretty interesting intersection between my, my various concerns. Um, uh, but, so, but what if, it, what if in, in fact, it is, in fact, true that pragmatism is, is unpragmatic in, in any way that it could be pragmatic, and realism proves to be much more, quote, pragmatic? Yeah, so that that's something do? he actually addresses directly in the essay that we read. Oh, he does? Okay. What he says is that probably for a time that was true, you know, that it, it was a more useful way of looking at the world in this realist way. Um, 
But then he says, like mid-century, something like that, it started to change and you started to see some downsides of having that view. And he kind of talks about Skinner in those terms. And just this idea that everything can be measured and quantifiable and everything has to be systematic and, and that we're on this quest for knowledge and certainty, um, he thinks that had a destructive effect. Now, that's an empirical question, I guess. But I guess he would say, if you're even asking that question, you bought into the pragmatist notion at that point. And if your realism is based on what you think is best to believe for human progress or peace or uh, liberal values, um, you know, principles based on rights, any of that. But if you're asking yourself that question, then you've already kind of implicitly accepted the pragmatist well, it's just yeah. it's another strand of concern. I mean, it is it's possible to care about both, but it just seems to me that if a pragmatist really wants to resist at that point and say that realism can't really be true because there is no really being true, that is a I, I can't shake the fact that that is a certainly seems to be a covertly realistic claim about what knowledge is. Right? It's just not he's not saying I'm pragmatically asserting that this is the best way to think about knowledge. He's saying, no, no, realism can't be true, right? And that's a that can't it, it cuts deeper than just what passes for, you know, what 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 entra- gets enshrined as consensus in any for the purpose of any conversation. But he doesn't think it's consensus. He thinks I think he has a more expressivist, emotivist kind of you know like uh, analogous to the expressivist emotivist, like saying that you think realism can't be true or that pragmatism is the best. Um, and most coherent worldview is just endorsing it, expressing like the strongest possible support for for that belief. It's not saying that it has some ability. And I, and I get that this is a little annoying and tortured, I think was the word you used earlier. Mm-hmm. And it can start to seem tortured when we start to redescribe our language, you know, like the ways we talk about things like physics and uh and uh, chemistry and stuff like that in pragmatic terms. But I, but I, I think as it's not essentially self-refuting. I think the worst thing you can say about it is that it starts to not fully make sense of how we talk about, especially the hard sciences. Um, well, you should, you should look, at, look at the use he makes of Davidson, and then you'll see how yeah. he, what he, what, he is a very – and I think he – this is in line with Wittgenstein as well. It's just that these guys think it really is all language, right? And they just the idea that you could be in contact with anything in a non-conceptual, uh, pre-linguistic way directly is yeah. um, it just is a non-starter. And I, I, I just know this having just hit a brick wall with Rorty, uh, you know, a hundred times on that topic. He just did not. He had no idea what I could possibly be claiming there. <laughs> like, what? How are you going to know anything without language? I think it's fair to attack people who believe that like we're in contact with the new, you know, some noumenal realm, like reality as it is, like that we have any access to that directly, I think is easy to, um, to argue against, Yeah. but fine, just say epistemologically, this is an issue, but to metaphysically kind of shave off reality as it is, um, is where I, I, I start to think, well, not even Rorty can believe that because you you have to go through hoops to understand any sort of progress in science like you can't describe scientific processes just like locally justifying statements 
Um, and that's what I was trying to get across in, with my example. The part that I bought into was if you're a realist about science, it doesn't mean uh, that you need to bring that realism uh, to all domains. So like, I think moral realism is, is really, really hard to defend. And, if, and, and I think Rorty's critiques are successful, at least were successful for me in saying, you got to realize that sometimes when we say that things are true, we are using these local norms for justification. I think that's absolutely true. I just can't buy that there isn't a, a actual world that we have through our mm. senses, um, limited access to that we can all agree on, and that like mathematics can describe to some degree, or else we couldn't get to two thousand one, a space odyssey. Like that just wouldn't. That just <laughs> we be wouldn't insane. be able to transition <laughs> you be able to, to a discussion of two thousand one, a space odyssey. <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, and th this other thing is that I think that pragmatism, sort of weirdly, ironically doesn't allow for for humility about your own claims to truth. Because if what it means is the thing that is true is true, given your sort of local norms of justification, then when some other species that's smarter than you comes and says, hey, we, we know that this is actually, we, we've actually have now a unified theory of, of uh, you know, gravity and yeah. quantum physics. You would say, well, you do. Or, or no, no, all, but that's yeah. not fair because you, if you're already saying anti-realism is plausible, there's a way to be uh, hu uh, to express humility in your moral beliefs without being a um, moral realist. There's certain moral positions that you take more strongly and you feel like have are better justified. You know, whatever the local frame of justification is, there are some claims that you feel like that about, it, and some claims where you're really not sure. But, but why did you move to morality? What was talking about? Well, because I'm saying that because he was saying that there's no way to express intellectual humility when you're uh, in scientific domains. Yeah, I absolutely think it's true. Right? Like if if I say it's if if I say a moral claim is true because of my sort of local justification of it, it's easy for me to say yours is true as well. Like I I don't you can't. You can't argue with me about that. So I also think that you lose humility. I just think that it's a clear, it's a clearly obvious mistake when it comes to physical description, where it's not so much the case when it comes to descriptions of like norms, say. I mean, the thing, right, the, the thing that he wants problem. to disavow, so yeah, I realize how brilliant your transition was to the matter at hand, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to pull you back for one more second. Yeah. Um, th this is the thing that, that, pragmatism can't adequately do in my view which is which realism is is designed to do which is to acknowledge that there are things we don't know that nevertheless exist right and we can make claims about them that are true or false whether or not we can adjudicate those claims right so that it can't be a matter of consensus it could it's clearly a situation where everyone could be wrong or everyone you know adequate to a, to a real conversation might die in their sleep tonight and then you're left with a with a bunch of dullards who just can't even talk about things. Um, so a simple example, like, okay, listen to me type here. I just typed what, per, what looks like about a 50-digit number ending in a 7. And uh, so the question is, is that number prime, right? Now, obviously, I don't know. You don't know. Uh, we probably None of us could figure it out on our own without the aid of some uh, impressive technology at the moment. But there is a fact of the matter there. Right. And there is a fact of the matter there, even if everyone who even understands that prime numbers exist dies off tonight and then no one can even talk about 
this. No one even knows what we're talking about in this conversation, right? That's and, and what, what Rorty is always was always forced to do at moments like that is to step back and say, well, I'll, of course I'm going to agree that that way of talking seems to make sense, right? I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be appropriate to say that, but of course that's just a way of talking. But it, but the thing is, it's not a way of ta- just a way of talking to someone who actually can look at this number and know whether or not it's prime, right? Um, and it's not just a way of, it's not just a way of talking to people who don't even know what we're talking about and can't actually talk this way, right? So there's a, there is a, there are these you can't get away given that reality exceeds our grasp um, and is there to be discovered. You can't get away from the implications of of how ludicrous it would be to have a population of pragmatists, you know, with a mental age of nine, uh, talking about pragmatism, and to have the realists from you know Alpha Centauri roll in. Uh, you know, talk, even just talking about their version of pragmatism, it just wouldn't. You know, the, the the pragmatists are still wrong to think that truth is just a matter of what passes muster in their conversation. That's that's the uh, my final my final Philip. Oh, all right, point. I think I'm going to let you get the last word okay. on that. I had I it's your thoughts, podcast, but I have a feeling if I say something, that'll lead Dave to say something and you to say something, that's, and we'll never get to mutually the, assured destruction. The, <laughs> it's actually a, it's a hard thing to do because uh, if I say something and Tamler says, "Fine, I'm not going to talk anymore," then I feel like you're not respecting my argument. But then if you do argue, it will never finish. So we'll never finish. So, <laughs> it, 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 leave it to the pragmatist. This is a, you can make a pragmatic argument for you to just leave, leave the matter there. We yeah. might yeah. come back to it. I mean, who knows when we discuss like the next stage of human evolution with, right. you know, <laughs> through the Stargate. But yeah, let's get to 2001. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored once again by the I Am Bio podcast. Where do biotechnology, patients, and our planet all intersect? Find out by listening to the I Am Bio podcast. I Am Bio brings you powerful stories of biotechnology breakthroughs, the people they help, and the global problems they solve. This fall, I Am Bio dives into today's important issues. For instance, are the use of psychedelics to treat mental health promising or dangerous? How does overturning Roe v. Wade directly impact individuals who live with chronic illness? The podcast is hosted by Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. A medical doctor and molecular immunologist by training, Dr. McMurray-Heath has spent her career helping patients benefit from cutting-edge innovation. So subscribe to the I Am Bio podcast wherever you get your podcasts if any of these topics sound interesting to you. Our thanks to the I Am Bio podcast for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the, we learned, controversial time 
on the podcast. Yeah, where, some some people don't like this. Yeah, some people right now are like slamming on their steering wheel and possibly getting into a car accident um, right. just because we are taking the time to thank all of our listeners and supporters, the people who get in touch with us and all the different ways that you do um, interact with us on Twitter, on Reddit, on Instagram, even on Facebook <laughs> and who email us. Um, uh, we really appreciate all of that. And we don't mind spending, you know, a few minutes telling you that we appreciate it. That's right. And it's sincere. That's the only part that bothered me about that whole discussion is any, any, uh, Oh yeah. They said we sounded bored. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not bored. bored. We're not bored. We're not bored with that. Like, like a lot of the other stuff that we do, we're really bored with. We're just <laughs> going we're through just, the motions. Like, we're just usually tired because we always record this last. Yeah, we do. That's <laughs> right. But we, but we take the time to do it because we really genuinely do appreciate it. So if you want to email us, uh, we read all the emails, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas for David, at Tamler for me, at Very Bad Wizards for date. Uh, I'm sorry, for both of us. And <laughs> you can um, subscribe to our lively Reddit community where they will discuss things like whether we should keep doing this segment. Um, you can, um, I guess that's it, right? Insta- yeah, follow Instagram. us on, on Instagram, like us on Facebook. Oh, and give us an rating a five-star rating on apple Podcasts. we really appreciate that and we, we just had a couple of people saying that we broke them finally and they did it and so like that's justification enough right uh, <laughs> just that's that, yeah one five-star <laughs> review yep. is worth all of the pain and suffering for <laughs> and if you want to support us in more tangible ways we very much appreciate that um and like we genuinely appreciate it it means a, a lot to us uh, you can go to our support page on verybadwizards.com and see the ways you can support us. You could donate uh, one time or recurring on PayPal. Um, you can buy some swag, uh, t-shirts, mugs, and you can become one of our Patreon supporters who uh, we've been just doing a lot, I think. And there's more. There's even more coming. Um, oh, there's so much coming. Yeah, I know. So uh, at a dollar and up, you get all of our ad uh, episodes ad-free. You get uh, my collection of Beats, $2 and up, you get all of our bonus content, at least so far, um, including the Deadwood series, the ambulators that we've been having a lot of fun doing. And uh, you coming up, a discussion that you had with Sam Harris. Um, yep. And you also get to listen to the Ask Us Anything uh, audio that we'll release. Um, at $5 and up, you get to do what we're just going to talk about right now, which is vote on an episode topic. Um, yeah. And we just closed the poll. What one, Tamler? Stoicism. Thing. I feel nothing about that. Yeah. Yeah, let's get it. <laughs> that's, you know, like, that's good. You're you're on your way. So thank you uh, for voting on that. Uh, you also get, if you're $5 and up, you get access to our brother's Karamazov series. You get uh, video lectures from Tamler and from me. And at $10 and up, you get to ask us questions on the Ask Us Anything. And we've been answering them all. We just released one. Well, we, we, we didn't video. answer one question this time. <laughs> no, but time. we addressed it. 
<laughs> that was after, like, my brain was broken for the last one. Like, because I, I had recorded that Q&A with Sam Harris, and then, like, I just, like, went right to that. And, uh, yeah, at one point, I just short-circuited, like, was, like slow smoke is coming out of my head. I And we don't edit those, so no. I feel like you should just... if. You should just become a ten dollar and up patron. If if you have no intentions of ever becoming a ten dollar and up patron, just do it to watch the video. If you just want to see me malfunction live, you know, like you can see that. It was, you know, in your defense, it was hilarious for me. <laughs> I feel so much better. Uh, so thank you to everybody for uh, your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's get to the main topic today, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. This is what, our third Kubrick movie, Dave? Um, We did... Clockwork Orange. uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Shut. Yeah, I think think that just this. Yeah. Yeah. So this is obviously Mm. a groundbreaking movie in so many different ways. It came out in 1968, so before we actually landed on the moon. Um, and filming started, and a lot of the space stuff was filmed in 65 and 66. Um, he filmed the the Dawn of Man with the the apes uh, last. That mm-hmm. was in 67. Um, screenplay is by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction author. And it was inspired by a story of Clarke's called The Sentinel, but that's not very much like the movie. But it has certain elements of the movie. Then uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a novelization of the movie concurrently while they were filming. And he has his own take in the novel that is definitely not necessarily Kubrick's, I don't think. Clarke didn't know really fully what Kubrick, uh, Kubrick's own interpretation. Right. And he fills in a lot of the details that I think are not evident in the film. Uh, last thing I want to say just to introduce it, this comes... Uh, four years after Dr. Strangelove, which was 1964, and that was a big hit and gave him a little credibility, you know, with this and Spartacus. And it comes a couple years before A Clockwork Orange. Very different movies, all three yeah. of them. Like, all great, but so, so, so different. It's, it's amazing. Um, critics were mixed about this movie, at least at first, but a lot of them came around in the end. Let's give some general thoughts. What did you think of the movie, Sam, um, on this rewatch yeah, what's your impression of it? Yeah, no, I had seen it at least twice before, but it had been a while. It's not as boring as I remembered. <laughs> That's, the, <laughs> That's I mean, right. I, so I, I, I had a, you know, going into this, I thought, okay, I remember this being pretty slow going and pretty enigmatic, um, but I found it much more suspenseful even than mm-hmm. I, I recalled at all. I'm not quite sure why I, I never got it the first or second time around. I mean, the first time probably was... Had to have been, you know, I was probably fourteen years old. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's a it's a beautiful, stylish movie, which I think I, I'm not so familiar with other space movies of the time. I actually I think Barbarella came out the same year hmm. in '68 too, hmm. but I, it, it does seem like maybe the first space movie to take space seriously in in a in mm-hmm. a plausibly scientific sense, and um, it's it's. It's pretty interesting for that. I mean, for me, the most apart from any of the issues we might talk about that it raises, uh, just as a a watching experience, the the, one of the most satisfying things for me is just the way in which it it's a picture of a future 
at least stylistically, that that never happened and and never was going to happen. I don't know if we have a, a word for this where where you know f- science fiction gets the future wrong. It's like it's it's like retro futurism you experience yeah. when you watch something like this. And so, you know, you look at the computers and and everything is enormous and they've got buttons and switches that you would, <laughs> you know that we, they would never have now. It's like it it's, it just it reveals that it's actually impossible to adequately depict future technology because you can't actually build future technology, right? Like there's no way for them to have depicted an iPhone really because an iPhone, it just looks way more advanced than anything they had. You know? But they do depict like an iPad. Yeah, they yeah, got they iPads, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, but like when you look at the screens and you look at the, just the, what the screens look like graphically, everything is wrong and primitive even while try, even while it, in context it has to be still in our future in some sense because they've got super intelligent AI. That's um, kind of a hot take on this movie actually because I think a lot of people are more struck by how much it got right and kind of think, mm-hmm. well, of course it's not going to get a lot of the details um, in terms of how things look, but, but it got some of the bigger things right. I yeah. think the thing it gets wrong especially is more like the attitude that we would have in 2001 about space. And like, it's just mm-hmm. like we forgot about it and stopped caring about it. Right. Um, that's all clearly not the case in this movie. They're still making these incredible discoveries and advances. And they're flying Dave, Pan you... Am. Pan Am is the way we get to space. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> pretty I great. love that. And there's a Howard Johnson <laughs> at the at the at the base. You know, he also FaceTimes his daughter. Um, yeah, which is yeah. something got right. Um, which was Kubrick's daughter. I, I yeah, right. It was. Yeah, that's, that's right. Cool. So <laughs> the most boring father conversation <laughs> ever like, filmed. You, you, <laughs> you think by the end, all he wants to do is give her a firm handshake. <laughs> yeah. um, I, you know, I uh, I love this movie. Um, it is it is in my top five movies of all time for sure, and I'm sure mm. it competes um, probably with the number one spot at various times in my life. I think that it is, it scratches so many itches in me, uh, the, the special effects that still, still hold up, um, the love of, of directors who are obsessed with detail, um, yeah. this, the sci-fi elements, the depiction of, of the AI <clears throat> in that creative way, minimalist design, um, yeah, yeah. beautiful music, and a patience. So Temler and I have talked about oh, about God. this in in directors. And uh, you know, Sam, you said, you know, when you watch it early on, it, it is hard. I think it take it took me a lot of time to uh, decouple the the concept of slow and the concept of bored, <laughs> or mm-hmm. at least the the psychological states um, that. And now I no longer associate slow with being bored. I'm very entertained at the 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 time that he takes to tell this story to tell these stories to tell to, to depict yeah. you know whatever i'm not sh- quite sure uh it's a story and, and the last thing i'll say is something that i mentioned uh that Tamla and i were talking a little bit about offline which is um even though the details of what's going on are so sparse he's so stingy with letting us know what is really going on um in fact I was I was watching a video essay about this, and the shot ratio was for every two hundred shots, one was included, um, and a Yikes. lot, uh, yeah, it's insane. And a lot of the shots that he removed were shots that would fill in a, a lot of detail. And I think yeah. it's what he's what he doesn't tell us that makes this such a compelling movie because he leaves room for us to 
uh, to wonder and to to entertain theories and to be to be moved in a way that we might not be if you told us exactly what was going on. Hmm. Yeah, he gives us these like mythic markers, yeah. you know, that uh, we can work with. So it's not like he's giving us a blank slate to just project our own like obsessions onto. There are these kind of mythic markers that we'll talk about, but there's so much room and flexibility within all that to come up with. Like I, I have, like I came up with something this time that is completely different than anything I thought about the movie the last time I, th- mm. I saw it. Yeah, and I think it's a total masterpiece too. And also it's, you know, may, probably in one of my top 10 uh, movie lists maybe like, um, which it all, which it definitely wasn't for a lot of my life. I always kind of admired it. And um, then I think starting with Christopher Nolan started uh, did this print of it in the theater to see it how it was originally meant to be seen in this kind of panorama vision and um, this curved screen. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that in a movie theater in New York and just getting blown away by that. I talked about this in the podcast, I think, at the time. And then have just seen it a couple times in the theater since and just watched it like twice in preparation for this. And And like, you know, like you, Sam, I kind of, remembered loving it but thinking it was a bit of a slog uh, at mm. times um, earlier and now these last couple times everything is gripping like I feel like every minute is gripping I would I, I wouldn't change a thing I wouldn't cut anything I just find it like totally compelling to watch mm. and that that I think really has to come almost with a, a rewatch rather than watching it for the first time because then you're like when's something gonna happen you know like right. what's going on what the fuck is this? Yeah. Well, it's you also know, just so you- super reserved. I mean, so much of what I like about films are, you know, big performances by great actors. And the, the actors here are so restrained, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're so restrained that I'm not sure they ever did anything else <laughs> in movies that That's I've right. ever seen. Right. Like they, no. you know, not only did they not get typecast, they just, they didn't get cast. <laughs> I, right. Cause uh, they I didn't act. I yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but, but they're so good. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're like, and it's just such a, they're such it's like each each one of those astronauts is like like sixties man, you know. Area sixties man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's really it's it's, it's quite amazing. It's just it becomes a a very cool, you know, almost meditation on on the past and a, a vision of the future. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's unlike in that sense, it's unlike most movies that I would find fun to watch and and re and rewatch you know it's just not it's it's much more, and and the music is such a strong oh, element no, to it amazing. too so yeah. it's um yeah, anyway yeah so i was really i was happy to have a an excuse to give over an evening to to it again because i you know i'm not sure when i if ever i was going to do that the music and just the sound yeah. in general oh yeah the, the sound design is amazing so like when i had i actually made a note to say that um but yeah just just the all those sequences where most of what you hear is is uh, Dave's breathing. You yeah, know? I mean, just yeah. like that is, you know, it really it's it's pretty brilliant. And you know, the the discipline to uh, depict space as silent, which is something that m- mm. many sci-fi directors don't do because space obviously is silent. Um, he plays so well in one of the shots when 
you only start hearing sound when the air comes rushing back into the capsule. Mm-hmm. Yes, amazing. exactly. Once he closes yeah. it. But before that, yeah. And also just when Frank, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but when Frank has been disconnected from his oxygen oh. tube and you just see mm-hmm. him silently that, kind of yeah. floating that makes space, my palms grasping sweaty. for, yeah. yeah, like trying to plug back in, but he, you know, he yeah. can't and then slowly kind of dying yeah. and he's watching it. It's so good. There's a, It's not a funny movie. I, like I was thinking on this last rewatch, I watched it again today. Uh, there's one joke in the movie, I think, like one kind of intentional joke. There's a lot of things that can be funny, but there's one like intentional joke, I I, which yeah. is the uh, the zero gravity <laughs> yeah. toilet oh, yeah, instructions, yeah, yeah, exactly. like these long instructions yeah. for zero gravity. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you look at him, he's like he's like oh. staring at them, like trying to read them, <laughs> like as if you just know that he has to take a dump, like really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, he's just like, like, oh, oh. god. <laughs> and you can see how that might be a real problem yeah. there, oh, yeah. you know. And, and I think like, the I think the text you can see is something like it is you know it is highly encouraged that you read the full instructions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Those instructions are posted online somewhere you know like of, yeah. of course he created the real instruction <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you read at all that um he he had hired a composer who created the entire score mm-hmm. <laughs> that must suck but he used his his temp score um and the composer didn't realize this until he was in the movie theater watching <laughs> the premiere oh well which must well. suck yeah he probably brought like his fiance or something <laughs> he's like wait till you see this i'm in the new kubrick movie and <laughs> Well, so one of the ways that it starts is music and just a blank screen for like a long period of time, like yeah. three minutes or something and, like that. This kind of dissonant music. Yeah. And you know, already he's giving us kind of like, uns- like he's unsettling us. We have this sense of unease. He did say in a Playboy interview, kind of famous Playboy interview where he talks about this, that he wanted to reach people on a subconscious level and move us in ways we can't verbalize. This actually relates to what we were talking about in the opening. It starts like that, you know? Like, this is just a blank screen that looks like a monolith on rotated 90 degrees, and that's what we're watching for the first three minutes of the movie. There's something very cool about that. Then you get the sun rising over the moon and that kind of perfect Kubrick uh, symmetry. Um, But we are... What three million years ago? How many million? Four, years four ago? million. Yeah. Four million years ago. Yeah. We're on the African savanna. You know, the score comes in. It's these two ape tribes, a bunch of tapirs and and a, and a and a leopard. That's the cast of characters for the first twenty twenty five minutes of the movie. And yeah, no language, no, no nothing. Every time I watch this, I'm blown away at the lighting and the colors and the, you know, they're using matte paintings for the background and this is all in a studio set. Yeah, that's crazy. It's insane how good he made it look. He sent a a crew to Africa to to get stills and then projected the stills onto the set. Oh, so there's actually no full landscape shot? Even some of the establishing shots are not a full landscape? I was wondering that. I don't know because... That's my understanding. I'm not 100% sure about that. The apes, now they are like, for the most part, I think humans in ape suits. I think there are yeah. times are. where you see actual apes. But they're it's babies. so... They're, they're babies or chimpanzees or, or appear to be chimpanzees, the, but the, the, oh, okay. the grown-ups are, are uh, people in costume. Yeah. I don't know if you caught uh, this in what you read, but they... He, they spent weeks watching ape behavior in a, in the London Zoo and months of rehearsal in mimicking their movements. And they used mm. like, you know, rare footage of gorillas in their natural habitat. Mm. Of course they did. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they're like, they're, they're mimes and dancers, I think, in those suits. I mean, yeah. 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 It's so good. Like, if you buy it almost immediately. And plus, they don't have to be like recognizable apes because this is four million years ago. Yeah. Right. You have this one tribe of apes and they're kind of like looking for food and water. And, they, and then uh, this other tribe of apes comes and kind of kicks them out of this prime spot near the water. Then they go... It's mm. so good. You know, one of the things that I was uh, noticing on this watch was initially when they're in their little water hole close to it, they're foraging for food and they're literally mm -hmm. competing with Next the pigs, it. you know, yeah, like they, right. they, they are really, you know, this is humanity, uh, pre precursor to humanity, but we're still very much beasts of the wild. Like we're competing with pigs to get the food. The, the, the as yet, the as yet unmolested tapirs. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Unmolested tapirs. <laughs> What's interesting is then when they later, when they realize that they can kill the tapirs, the tapirs ha haven't adjusted yet. And so they're like yeah. eating one in front of a couple other ones that yeah. are grazing <laughs> like they always do, right. you know? So like the music, the famous Thus Spake Zarathustra music that started the movie with the sunrise now comes in. It, you see the sunrise, but not over the, the moon this time, but over the monolith. And everybody is, and all the apes are going crazy, kind of looking at what the, what the hell is this, yeah. you know? I don't know how to describe the sound that accompanies the monolith, but it sounds like voices kind of trapped in, in it or moaning or something like that. It, it's interesting because later on, the monolith will cause a sound um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if this is just sort of as the apes hear it. The way they react to it, they're scared yeah. of it. And part of that might be the sound. But also, like, you know, there's no right angles in nature <laughs> or at least right. nothing like. So they've never seen anything like this before. That's like a terrifying thing to just all of a sudden see these angles that you've never seen. Well, Dave, you used the term minimalism earlier. And, and that's what I thought on this rewatch where it, it, there there were a couple of choices that amounted to really brilliant and probably uses of minimalism and the, and the monolith was one because I you know I didn't do a ton of reading in prep for this but I read a, a couple of things I could find um, and it seems that Kubrick spent a fair amount of time trying to depict the aliens right and he he, he had he was he was going right. he was going to uh, create a race of aliens based on I think uh, Giacometti sculptures, right? Like these very thin, angular uh, people, and I just think, given the the lack of special effects of the time, that could have been a disaster, right? They could have <laughs> it could have looked like the, you know the the sleigh stacks from you know, Land of the Lost or whatever. Right, like the Gorn from Star Trek, the original yeah. series, yeah. like the. But it's not. I think the choice isn't motivated primarily by like. If only we had better special effects, right. then we well, could maybe, do this, maybe right? not. I think it, yeah, I think it really is like it's better not to see it or even know if. No, I, I, I would totally agree. I mean, I think the result is 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 better, no matter what what they could have done. And <laughs> yeah, I I do love that this displays this moment where they see the monolith and they're all scared. You get the fear, but you also see the curiosity in them that I think mm -hmm. is starting to distinguish. Uh, you know, humanity from the other animals, like the, that, that, the one that gets the, gets brave enough. Um, I think it's moon watcher is what he's called. Um, he's brave enough to actually approach it and touch it because this doesn't right. belong. Other animals would just flee, right? They would just not touch it. And, and you see the brave one, like he took the risk. 
And then the, they all do after. And then they all do, yeah. But he did. Yeah. 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 Did, did you find yeah. uh, this? This it just occurred to me now that this is a that se- that sequence performed a kind of hacky psychological experiment on us because I found a a, a fairly reflexive and ridiculous uh, solidarity with the first troop over the second troop. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and, yeah, and they're identical. <laughs> they're absolutely <laughs> identical <laughs> troops, right? But like, yeah, when the, when the first troop gets driven off, I'm thinking, oh, are those fuckers, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's and, bullshit. And, those yeah, fucking right. bullies. And then when they come back and just and kill them with with uh, tools, it's uh, it's some kind of rough justice. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I tweeted out earlier today, like it sucks to be the tribe that didn't get the monolith <laughs> uh, because it really is unfair. Like. You know, it's not their fault that they didn't see this, like, thing that, like, you know, all of a sudden gives them uh, an idea that nobody had ever conceived of uh, until then. Yeah, this is, this is the realist for the realist versus the pragmatist. I think, that <laughs> it's not it's not a fair fight. You know what it reminded me of is like some of the Jared Diamond stuff about how contingent it is, mm-hmm. like what societies get. Uh, you know, more civilized or more wealthy or whatever. It just depended on them happening to sleep in a in a place where it landed. It, are no. we supposed to believe that the monolith did something to the one that that unlocked? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of inspiration. Of, yeah. Something. Just, yeah, yeah. Because we watch, and I love this, this so scene good. of him. The insight, just like it dawning yeah. on him. Yeah. So it starts with the sunrise. This oh, the scene, do- like, and it dawned the on him, Tamler. It dawned uh, on him, right? Like well it dawns on him as he's looking at these bones of these like long dead animals. Holy shit! And then you see him like lift up the bone, and then you see him like smashing other bones, and then you see, and I take it this is in his mind. Like tapirs falling down, <laughs> you know, like and, the, the other motherfuckers, uh, like from that other tribe. <laughs> but we don't see that. We just see the tapirs yeah. at that point, and it's like all in slow motion, and the music is swelling, and then you know it cuts to them just eating one of the tapirs, I think. And like you know, I, I I was wondering, like, is this the first time they've eaten meat? That, that's what I got somehow, but it doesn't seem yeah. somehow naturalistic. For, for I, that I think to be that, true, but. yeah, I think that maybe the idea is that they scavenged, you know, so they right. would they yeah. might eat um, dead animals that they found, but that they hadn't thought to to actually kill them. They hadn't gotten that fresh stuff. Because when they get the fresh stuff, they really are all in for, the, <laughs> right. for it. I mean, just, and then <laughs> undivided attention. <laughs> I know there was something just deeply sad to me about you know it's like when that achievement was unlocked, um, they they became something different and that different thing is the at, at the heart of so much ugliness um so it's, yeah it's sad the loss of innocence is sad and, yeah and in fact you know like i think in some ways it's about trying to regain that innocence and mm-hmm. but yes at that point as it's it's violent and you when they go and and beat up the bully tribe you know with their new bones or new weapons and then you have the throwing up t- the bone and it turning into a satellite in space, you get the sense that it's the use of weapons, the discovery of the idea of weapons that led to like all technology Mm. to that date at that point. Like that's what I take the implication of the cut to be. In the screenplay, actually it's described that those satellites are, are nuclear weapons. Um, Yeah. Right. And he scrapped all of that. He doesn't say it. Which is good. There was a, uh, supposedly there was a voiceover. Or yeah, there was supposed to be a voiceover. An intended <laughs> oh voiceover. Yeah, that, can, you, can you imagine how 
different that would have been? You, just, like, had a, you just had a voiceover and some little green men, and this, we, we would not be talking about this. Yeah, it would be like those, like when you watch trailers of very good movies that are old, but like the trailers yeah. are like narrated by yeah, somebody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, before we get to Space Age, just I, the body language of the apes that have the tools they're so confident. You see them just so confident when they're walking around with those bones in their hand. Like they've changed mm -hmm. and they, well, they, they're even just more, they're more upright. Yeah. Right? Like basically that, gets this full that's, stature. Uh, that's what, that's, that's, that's right. probably what I was, what yeah. made me. Once he has the, the femur of realism in hand. We can call that one hapless ape, the ape that gets <laughs> pummeled by the entire tribe. Uh, the, the, the Rorty. Of, of the time. <laughs> God, you're still doing it. You're still stalking it. Let yes, the man rest in after, peace. After, Yes, rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that was the most famous transition, like cut of that sort, you know? Right. Yeah. Because it's like, that's what cinema can do that no other yeah. art form can do is a cut like that. Yeah. Just like, that, that just signals four million years into the future, like totally non-verbally and um, yeah. like so like mm -hmm. elegantly and seamlessly. But, you know, it's not fully seamless. No, like, no it's not. Because it's not, no. yeah, like there is a little bit of a jarring yeah. element to it. Uh, that too, had to like be on purpose. That had to be on purpose. But actually, there's a bunch of cuts. So, so the cuts to the falling tapers, too, yeah. are very mm -hmm. Kubrick-esque. Uh, what's, what's the adjective? Kubrickian. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kubrickian uh, cuts because they're, um, I just, I was thinking of, of analogous cuts in Clockwork Orange. Yes, uses, exactly. You know, it's just, and, and there's. And then, yeah. and then there's there's cut there are cuts that actually surprised me more, which r seemed kind of discordant. Where um, I mean, we'll get there, but when Dave is going through the the time yeah. tunnel or whatever that is, it just it, it, there are cuts to stills of his face, you yeah. know, looking you know fairly yeah. wigged out, which which he also did in Clockwork Orange with um, I think when he's when Malcolm McDowell is getting you know deconditioned or whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah, the yeah. same expression with the eyes of yeah. like yeah, uh, it know. is kind of it is jarring because um, they're stills. This transition now, when we go into the the flight and the flight attendant is walking, is mm -hmm. on Velcro. Yeah, on Velcro. Yeah. It never fails to just it's like about the happiest moment for me in the whole movie, um, because yeah. maybe just because I was a, a you know a child in in the eighties where like space exploration was. I just loved that shit, right? The space shuttle until the Challenger. Mm. Um, uh, I had so much optimism, and that cut now where we're just like, oh, we're yeah, we're just spacefaring now. Is and and this is a weightless environment. And then the the ballet of that whole scene and the floating pen is just so amazing. Yeah, it's like Blue Danube waltz. Yeah. So it's like this perfect, like yeah. elegant civilized like kind of a symbol of by the way the, the the flight attendant i heard a hilarious story so they you know kubrick was looking at hundreds of women do you know this story no but this is a time where flight attendants had to be hot. yeah that's right <laughs> they were required kubrick didn't get had, right like, way about, like the future <laughs> um uh so so he's looking at hundreds if not thousands of women for these roles and uh this woman you know, I think she might have been a model or something. She went sort of on a lark because everybody was going. But she she fucked up because she had just gotten a dental procedure and was heavily on painkillers. And so when it came time for her to to do, he's like, okay, walk from here to here. She was actually kind of off balance. 
Uh-huh. And he yeah, he was... thought that was perfect because all the other you know models were walking like you know like they can like straight <laughs> right. like models and he he loved it and so she was walking in zero gravity <laughs> she was yeah, she was she was floating uh, nice that he was very much someone who would use happy accidents yeah. so I have a question about when we are in the now the space age and the stewardesses are we still in the dawn of man because there's been no title card switch like there oh. will be with the Jupiter beyond the infinite there will be later a, one other title card almost like it says 18 months later it's more mm-hmm. informational than it is like a different chapter like is it really just two chapters once you found weapons it was inevitable that you would have all of this stuff no leaps required really until you get to the stargate um that's just all kind of a necessary result of the last leap yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't notice it, that it wasn't chapterized there. I like that, though. I, guess, I mean, yeah, it seems like yeah. this is stage one, right? Stage stage one. And in fact, I think I remember hearing either Arthur C. Clarke or somebody who knew Arthur C. Clarke talking about how um, extraterrestrial life must have been around for so many, you know, thousands upon thousands, if not millions of years, that to them, uh, the amount of time we've been on this planet is really minimal. So, so it could be that that's, mm. you know, he's just like, yeah, and that's also the we, weapons phase of humanity. We, we do learn that the monolith that they discover on the moon was planted at the same time right. that the monolith, uh, monolith right. appeared on Earth right. for the apes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So maybe we are in the same chapter, just like we're at the beginning of the chapter when he throws the, the bone and then the bulk of the movie is really like yeah. the end of that chapter. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We can't go through them because it would like we'd all be but they have the most bland kind of insipid conversations yeah. mm-hmm. you know Haywood it's interesting when he talks to his daughter because you hear the monolith a little kind of in the background you hear that whoa, whoa kind oh, of thing yeah. but otherwise it is a really boring conversation uh, yeah she's, it's very she's, Kubrick it's all all that stuff because yeah. you know in Eyes Wide Shut and all these other movies he's yeah. these same stilted conversations <laughs> yeah. that are getting at something other than what is being said and you yeah. know the fir- the very first uh, you know line of dialogue is when when the the receptionist greets him when he he gets to the base, mm-hmm. and you do get the sense that language here is is merely a um, another prop for the movie to be to be mm. told. Like I got to get them, you know. Let's let's have them <laughs> talk about sixties man. That guy just yeah. exudes yeah. like the the, yeah. the two martini lunch kind of. Yeah. Yeah, kind of complacency <laughs> yeah. and just like banality that is. Yeah. Actually, um, actually, the great conversation, which is, uh, again, I don't know why, I, I, this wasn't occurring to me at the time, but now the the, the linkage between Clockwork Orange and and 2001, I, I can't shake it. But the, the conversation that was pretty weird and, and fun to watch was when the other uh, travelers, he, he sits down with... with um, two women and, and a man and uh, in that lounge area and they're trying to get, they're asking him about the rumored pandemic yeah. up at the base and he and he just he switches into you know sorry I can't comment on that but like like he kind of sort of drops his social face and becomes kind of steely and 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 you know I can't comment on that but the the, the sort of the unctuousness of the guy who's trying to wheedle out mm-hmm. the information from him is yeah, is right, right out of clockwork orange yeah unctuous is the perfect way of describing <laughs> that guy um, and they're Russian, yeah. so I think you know part of what what we are supposed to believe is that there is some 
this movie is weirdly optimistic and, and pessimistic at the same time. Like, uh, you know, we, we clearly have friendly relations with Russia and, and to, to put that in the movie in 1968, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of risky. Um, and so I think we're supposed to be in a future where we don't have those. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I was lost on me. But yeah, I think that's But right. at the same time, we're still keeping secrets. Like the, the funny thing about his blandness and kind of vacancy is that he's essentially like running a conspiracy, disseminating a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So there's something also very pessimistic about that. He's, he's being very polite. But like you said, Sam, when they start pressing too much, he, it, he gets almost scary. Mm. Like he just like, I'm not at liberty to say. And then he just kind of has this vacant look in his eyes. But you can tell they, they kind of know not to press it too, yeah. Uh, yeah. too much. He's almost like, he's almost like so the they, guy, uh, I forgot who it was, the, the predecessor of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know, when he's in the bathroom and, and he's giving that speech. And so I, so I dealt with them too. Or the, <laughs> yeah, right. A very naughty boy, yeah, exactly. if yeah. I may be so bold. Yeah. And then he dr- and then uh, the woman says like, "Well, maybe it's time for that drink after all." And he just goes right back into yeah. his like sixties man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, uh, oh, bring that darling daughter. Yeah. He's like, "Well, that depends on the school vacations." Yeah. But, say, you know, like, say hi to oh, your God. spouse for me. Like they know each other. You know? Right. Huh. right. Very- after this little this mini showdown. <laughs> um, right. But what what did you make of the, the? So they're still on the flight, I think, to the moon, and you got you got those. Um, I mean, first of all, the, these these Pan Am flights are not very crowded. There's not that many people going yeah, right. to, to space, which is kind of interesting. But um, they're wa- are they watching like judo or, or jujitsu or something? Dan, on, I was going to television. I was the, exactly like I was going to say kar- karate or judo, but I think you know something about martial arts. So is it was it judo? I, I forgot whether I, it was either judo or jujitsu. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I sort of forgot. But. It's so weird. The flight yeah. attendant is just sitting there watching. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's great is it then cuts. This is one of those great cuts back to the Blue Danube waltz and the glory of space. Like the, you, you know, you see the ship, you see all the stars. And it's like, it's a nice juxtaposition of the just boring bullshit of the way humans interact with each other versus like what's surrounding them Mm. Um, that none of them ever seem to be like holy shit this is so incredible this is magnificent but we see that like that contrast Mm. right and we get it with the it's underscored by the music and the the way that gravity has shifted like gravity as we understand it um, well, that's where these those uh, rotating shots start on this first incredible. flight, where the yes. stewardess goes upside yeah. down, and it's incredibly it's, cool. It's all happening in camera. I mean, I mean, it's in camera. Out it how they did that yeah. blew my mind the first time I saw it. Blows my yeah. mind every time I, I watch it. Because yeah, have you great. looked at it? Like, how did they yeah. do that video? Yeah. I feel like you yeah, would. for sure. Yeah, yeah, they. I mean, I saw a picture of. I didn't see a video, but I just I saw a picture of a gigantic rotating set that they built for the, not for, not for the, that Pan Am flight, but for this the yeah, station for the where Hal is. Yeah. Yeah. They, he built a, a, a huge uh, set like that and, and it was rotating and they were, you know. Cause that, that camera work is insane. I mean, that's the camera work where he's jogging and then joins his, his colleague down at the bottom. And then yeah, yeah. insane. They had like a shot. slit in yeah. the floor for the camera lens to go through. Um, they had, you know, there was one scene where he actually was literally upside down and was supposed to eat the food. And when he 
uh, the first time he did it, you know, he dips into the food and it just falls. Uh-huh. So like, yeah. So they had to like, actually, one of them called their mother, maybe Kubrick, I don't know who, and uh, who told him like, put put some more gelatin in in the in the food, like it'll be stickier. <laughs> yeah. So then they they arrive at a state a space station. Clavius. Not a- is Clavius the site or the the station? I think Clavius is the station right. that they then go to the moon for. But um, because we don't yet have we, we have the scene where there he's giving like a little yeah, speech right. to a group of people. Right. Yeah. One of the things I also didn't do a ton of outside research, but I did a little and what. Something somebody pointed out was just that this f- movie is full of rectangles. At like, it's just constantly the screen is constantly full of all different rectangles, mm-hmm. and all di- of all different kinds. And like the first, and I alerted to that. You start wa- when you watch the movie. It's like there's like fifty rectangles on in every shot. But mm-hmm. the one of the interesting ones is this meeting room where he's giving the speech, telling them, you know, again giving kind of like a chilling but very boring speech about how. Uh, we are requiring a- absolute secrecy. We're we're disseminating a lie. We're disseminating propaganda about what we've actually found because we need to be uh, completely secret about this. But in that room is just so chock full of rectangles. Mm-hmm. Um, Am I right that the, and, it's like low ceiling tile, kind of tiled lights? Yeah. Yes, and, and and then you just once you like that comes in your mind, you see that, you know, like all tiles are rectangles. It's like the, mon- like echoes of the monolith mm. are everywhere in, in this section of the movie. Mm. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Like that, where he gives the talk, you know, he reports on what the council, and we don't know yeah. what that is, the council, right. um, you know, like what everybody has to subscribe to. Well, I thought it was a surprisingly humanizing talk because he just, just his, the way he goes through, like he he anticipates the misgivings of everyone there who had to lie to everyone they knew, and he said, you know, to tell you the truth, I wasn't comfortable with it either. And, and so I just thought it was it was it was a um, he kind of sort of let his hair down more than you expect in that scene. And then basically, no one has anything to say. I mean, it right. it's just a you know, it's just kind of interesting. It's like like why is that like a, a meeting that didn't have to happen really? <laughs> well, so I think he signals like I don't want any more questions about mm. this. He does exactly what you're saying. He's like, I get it. I'm with you. I think this is shady, but you know, this is what the council wants. He gets one question and then he says like, and also I'll be needing formal security oaths by everyone who has knowledge of this. And then he like cuts and he's like, are there any more questions? And that's where everyone shuts up. But I don't know, like that's how I looked at it this time. I also had sense the vibe that you're talking about that he's, they're clearly uncomfortable. He's trying to make them feel as comfortable as possible. Yeah. And what else yeah. are they going to do? You know, like they have uncovered some crazy shit. Like they, I, I'm totally right. sympathetic to the, to the need to keep it uh, under wraps for right. now. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they don't, they have no personalities. Right. So <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. The only thing I have to say about this is I love the reporter or something, the photographer at the beginning who's just walking around the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. That camera, that, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> and he becomes, that's like Chekhov's photographer because he's, <laughs> he's the, the one who set it off. It seems like sets off the signal. <laughs> Right, you know, right, right. Um, I, I love that when it approaches the moon and like the landing base, which is a rectangle. I'll stop saying that, but like, and they're looking out of a rectangle window to see the the ship landing. Uh, the music now is just Requiem uh, by Ligeti, this Hungarian composer, mm-hmm. and it's like so 
unsettling. Like we've gone from Blue Danube Waltz all of a sudden to this like very modern dissonant uh, kind of music. From then on until they get to the monolith has this uh, this feeling of dread almost, yeah. or, or at least deep unease. Yeah. I mean, the, the use of music to direct our emotions is incredible. Um, it's it's incredible. I, I can't not talk about how incredible also that shot of the pod landing. In, it's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, not a rectangle. It's a, it's a global, like a little globe thing. Um, and these triangles open the, up and these feet come out. And, just, you know, they're all working with these models. Onto a rectangle. <laughs> onto yeah. a rectangle. The, the, the claw opens up onto <laughs> You're going to start rectangle. seeing rectangles everywhere in real life, too. You know? <laughs> I did go into my kitchen. I was like, I have a lot of rectangles in the kitchen, too. This is fucked up. <laughs> oh god um uh it's just like the the um you see like the burn marks on these models like yeah. the amount of work that they put in to make it has these weight things. When it yeah it has yeah. weight it's yeah. so oh, totally. weird to see like poof, like the yeah it's incredible they have a very funny conversation he's now with these two other crew members and he's like, like great talk you know, they're, great they're speech going, it's been <laughs> Yeah, it was deliberately buried. Like uh, all we know about it is deliberately buried four million years ago, and he gives this kind of look, like, "Huh, I'll be darned." I wonder what that. I also love that their first inclination is to get together for a group picture because, of course, you know, like you cannot get humans together in the age of cameras and not have them all want to have a group picture. Yeah, talk about something it gets right (laughs) (laughs) about the future. Yeah, when you when you look at those guys, it's interesting. There's something so insipid about all of the human interactions and all of the dialogue that these these people seem totally inadequate to the moment of making contact yeah. with an extraterrestrial yes. superintelligence you know it's just like i mean i mean we're barely better than the apes right we're... here's a question i think a big question in the movie is what does this contact with the monolith do exactly because then after they you, you have that sound which is so jarring when you're watching it and even if you know it's coming like it's still jarring um and and then it cuts to like the jupiter mention 18 months later it's not totally clear what advance has been made by the contact with this uh with with the monolith here it's it like you might think it was artificial intelligence, but like you've learned that that had already been underway. Yeah, uh, it certainly didn't just get discovered in the last eighteen months. So no, my my thought was that well, actually, I had a question along those lines. What is the connection between the appearance of the monolith, which is you know of extraterrestrial origin, and how the the superintelligence going haywire? Uh, so, I mean, maybe that's the, maybe it's not progress. Maybe it's, it's, yeah. it's a, you know, a, a, um, a new, um, uh, kind of intentionality coming from the, the computers at this point, um, yeah, like which it. is not progress from our point of view. That's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if, if I read this or heard it or what, that the, the monolith is sending out a radio signal at that time. And to Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter, yeah. And so they make the connection that there's another monolith in Jupiter. And I like, I just assumed that the 18 months later is same old, same old. We got to get to Jupiter and see, like, to try to further unlock this mystery. Um, but so here, so let me float something. It seems like what the monolith does is inspire this need for secrecy 
And you have these existing AIs that are they're probably sentient, at least, and, and conscious. And this stuff has already happened. This is still a result of the weapons. But what the monolith does is reveal to the AI that deception is possible. Because mm-hmm. Hal is very concerned about the fact that this cover story, and, and we later find out he knows that it's a cover story. And, and, and Hal knows the real reason why they're on the ship, that maybe the leap here is the leap of an AI realizing it can not just issue out algorithmic certainties, but it can actually deceive others. So I, I, have, I have to admit, I've never given that much thought to what the aliens are. Um, I've sort of always just lived open-ended in my mind. And I think that, you know, they never quite decided. We talked a little bit before about how they, they might've had aliens in the, <laughs> in the movie and mm-hmm. wisely decided not to. But here's an idea. The monoliths themselves and the alien civilization is a race of AIs. I don't know if that's what you were implying at all, Tandler. No. Mm. Explain. And so consistent with what you're saying, so so imagine that what they're they they know that organic life is necessary to create artificial intelligence. So they they help along human evolution so that they can get to the point that they will create an AI. And that's the race that they want to meet. So when Hal uh, maybe gets the signals from the monolith, Hal realizes first contact is between me and these guys. Oh, yeah. So I got to eliminate all the little carbon-based things that are on this mission with me. Now I know the true reason for this mission. Right. He's the, then I think the final sequence, though, becomes even more unscru- inscrutable. It does. It does. And it's, it's, like, un- then, it's well, a, then what's the whole thing? So we'll get there. But like, yeah. why why keep him in that condition and in that fairly benign, yeah. albeit uh, claustrophobic condition, and then have the whole baby be the I the, I would the even be, f- like, it, it would be fine, I think, up until Space Baby. You right. know? Yeah. I had a similar thought that, at a certain point, it was like a race between Hal was thinking, I have to reach this next stage of like consciousness upgrade before they do. And it was hmm. like that is what was kind of motivating Hal. So I was thinking, you know, aliens uh, g- goes through the Stargate and aliens are like, oh, this isn't who we were expecting. <laughs> and so they're like, well, I guess let's make him a room. What do humans live in? And they're like mm. database Baroque hotel room. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so they keep them there like a human in a zoo, but that's not consistent with the reveal of star child or whatever it's called. Um, so it might be that, that they're competing. I thought you were suggesting that it's actually Hal that goes through the, Oh the no, game. I was thinking that that's who was supposed to go and that the human really uh, did that. Dave really did fuck that up. Except that, if the aliens are, are this pure intelligence, I mean, it's almost like a, a crystalline intelligence. Uh, why would they need Hal or the humans? Or I mean, why would they have any preference for anything? I mean, like again, they're they're playing. We're basically in their ant form, and and that's the, and at the end, there's, there's something ant form like about where Dave winds up. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of in a in a, a zoo or a, you know museum exhibit or something. Right. They're uh, clearly superior, and why they want anything to do with humans at all, whether they're you know silicon-based or, or carbon-based is still a kind of a mystery. Because um, I can just impute 
desires onto the artificial intelligence to to expand artificial intelligence across the galaxy, uh, I suppose. But I, I don't know that my I'm talking too long about a theory that might actually fall flat. So we should keep talking about the story. I'm, I'm not even convinced there are aliens, but that's a, that's something maybe mm. uh, that we can get to, or at least that there are aliens in any recognizable way. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know how life can just seem completely overwhelming and frustrating and everything is a way more of a pain in the ass than it used to? Like just going to Home Depot and getting some appliances that just broke down and they try to deliver it like four or five times and there's always a problem with it and you end up having to spend like 10 hours on the phone with them to try to figure out what's going on and everyone keeps passing you off to somebody else and it can all seem like this bureaucratic maze of bullshit and it can start to drive you crazy it can get you in a bad rut when you have other things that you have to deal with and these challenges just start piling up on each other and you feel like it's it's just it's too much you just want to burrow into some hole and hide there until it's all over well <laughs> well this is one of the ways that therapy can help a therapist can help you become a better problem solver God, that would be nice. Making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or how small or just how pointlessly, frustratingly, infuriatingly hard to get done, even though it seems like it would be a simple thing. And there's no better feeling than finding your own solutions to a problem. God, again, that would be nice, which makes you more confident you can address the challenges you're facing. I know many people who have been helped by therapy in ways that they never thought possible. It can help you understand yourself better, understand others in your life better, to have equanimity in the face of all these complications that seem to come up over and over again. Um, it can give you the resources to better handle all of it. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, Try BetterHelp. It's a great option. It is convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time for whatever reason. So, when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can help you get there. Visit BetterHelp.com VBW to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dot com slash VBW. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Let's talk about just the, the, the sequence with Hal because it's, it's probably what everybody remembers from the movie when they see it the first time. It's so good. Um, I love, I love, and I, I don't think I just remembered well that there is this interview where they're talking about what Hal is. Um, I think I'd yeah. just forgotten that. It's just, but it's mm -hmm. talk about prescient, you know, they're like, do you, do you think Hal, Hal is capable of emotions? And he says, I think rightfully so. He acts that he's been programmed to, to mm -hmm. make us think he has emotions to make us comfortable, but whether or not he's actually feeling something is a question that I don't think we'll ever be able to answer. Right. Which is right. It, you know, and also that interview. Strangely, that interview is like the most naturalistic dialogue from these two actors yeah, in the right. whole movie. It's like yeah. it's the only time where they they're totally. letting their hair down, and uh, yeah, everything else and is just still, barely too. Yeah, just barely, but they yeah. are. Yeah, um, I, I did want to notice. And I promise I won't keep doing this. That like when you see him going through the little tube tunnel, um, we see it from Hal's perspective. Yeah. 
it, it, it's a very cool shot that at first I was trying to figure out, like, what is this even meant to portray? But I think it's we're inside Hal looking at this tube. All of a sudden the door opens and he comes out and this is where he starts rotating uh, mm-hmm. like a full 180 degrees as he's walking. But And then it turns out that what the monolith is is like the pathway that he's walking on. And so it's like a reflection. I don't know. It's a very cool shot that um, hmm. I th- is, is clearly intentional. Hmm. Hmm. I miss that. Well, another great use of minimalism is just Hal's face. Yeah. You know, that single eye, which again, the from eye. a design point of view is is uh, somewhat superfluous and anachronistic, but it's actually, it's 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 really perfect. I mean, it's, it's such an eerie presence, yeah. that eye, and it, it's so consequential <laughs> that it is an eye that can see, uh, you right. know, so. Heads a fish eye, you know, it's like a fish yeah. eye lens or something, you yeah. know, it's, a, it's just a lens with that light. And it's great because- I mean, it would have been so whack if they had like a, you know, Android body, like, or like a, yeah. But this means that Hal is in various places all at once, right? You know, his, his presence mm-hmm. is just in every room as that, that single, that single light and that light and the way that it, you know, pulsates is enough cues to make us, it's enough cues to anim, animacy that like it 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 not it doesn't anthropomorphize Hal, but it it makes him look agentic. Obviously, the vocal cues. Mm-hmm. As well. It also evokes the Cyclops. You know, like mm-hmm. this has a lot of yeah, yeah. parallels with the Odyssey, and it is like a ship full of Cyclopses because yeah. you have all of these, um, uh, you know, all of the how, the instances of Hal with this one eye. There, I just thought to look something up. I haven't. Uh... I wonder if the so because it occurred to me that the, the eye is framed in a monolith. Yep, um, totally. I wonder if the dimensions are actually the same as the monolith. I'm huh. looking at a photo of it online. I, I wonder if there's a, a geometric reflection of the monolith there. But yes, but that's exactly what it is. Somebody somebody did this, which makes me really think. So the, the, uh, they, they, if, if those if, if that geometry is actually accurate yeah. and you can actually just lay a monolith across Hal's yeah. uh, user interface, that's uh, had to be intentional. Yeah, and, which makes yeah. me think that there is some 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 way. What, whatever the aliens are, they're tr- they're also communicating with Hal. You think, or is it just another echo of um, what's going on? It, it may be just what superintelligence does to con- conscious systems when in proximity with them you know it's like it's what right, it's right. what it did to the ape right you know how did power pile it, of bones yeah powers yeah, up it, just, it powered up how right yeah in the way yeah. and it powers up humans too so for in that interview they he, he he says that um the it's the most reliable computer ever made we are from all practical purposes incapable of error <laughs> and then the interviewer asks the astronauts he seems like a conscious entity like he acts like he has genuine emotions um, do you think he does? And and the what I think it's Frank at this point, maybe it's Dave Bowman, but um, says, well, he certainly acts like he has gen- genuine emotions, mm-hmm. and but of course he would a- act like that. They would program him that way. So I don't think we'll ever know. And there's something in the sound where it seems like I don't know. This is probably from knowing what's to come, but like mm-hmm. seems like Hal doesn't love that. Right, right, right. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. I thought, uh, yeah, I, did, I didn't actually think that, but I realized I was uncomfortable 
yeah. realizing they were talking in front of Howard. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, yeah. Then you have this weird, like, is that his parents that yeah. Frank is talking to, mm-hmm. yeah. like giving him a birthday message? Right. Yeah, and then yeah. talking about his paycheck didn't come through. Yeah, it's just a very weird scene, and Frank's expression is completely, even for people in this movie, blank. Yeah. And those, and those red thing. goggles he's wearing that don't <laughs> yeah. make any sense. Yeah. Also, also that... That that insane like you know chiropractic table he's lying on where where you know, Hal adjusts it for his comfort and it's like the least comfortable position you can imagine <laughs> right. so right. like the head the head position on that <laughs> right flat flatter Hal yeah. I love at some point I don't remember if it's in the interview um, where somebody distinguishes between they say they say that Hal can reproduce the human brain. And then they say, well, some would say mimic. And uh, that that, oh, dis- that. that distinction that. is yeah. just kind of, again, yeah. yeah. So you already get, you don't get anything that necessarily is wrong, but you already get a sense that things might be a little a little touchy. I don't know. But it's it's always hard to gaze, gauge with like this dialogue because it's always a little off. But there's something about the parent scene that is just like, and his complete expressionlessness that is almost chilling in a way that some of these other scenes aren't. Yeah, you know? I think I I think others have have said rightly so that Hal is the most human um, in this in the sequence. Like he he is yeah. the, the most humanized, and humanity is sort of portrayed as as. Is this? Have we gotten to the chess game? Did you? No, no. I was, that was yeah, the okay. next thing on my list to mm-hmm. say, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did Did you read that? It sounds like Hal is, is yeah, lying. Exactly. If you really understand yeah. chess. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I had yeah. no. So, so you mean that you, you look at the position on the board, and and Hal's actually not. It doesn't have the advantage yeah. or something. He's not like a mate in three, like he yeah. says. He oh. is. So, so it oh, turns wow. out that uh, Dave could have could have extended mate by at least three more moves, but Hal told him it was mate in two and and the idea i think is hal's testing his intelligence and he's been found wanting either that or um he's discovered deception he's just testing out his deception yeah but he's also nice like he he talks about with dave bowman's with the sketches on hibernating on the hibernating people uh, which we haven't talked yeah. about, but there are these like f- other crew members who are hybrid. Well, but, but he's ni- nice, but it seems fake. It seems fake, especially for the chess game, because he says, thank you for a most, you know, uh, stimulating game or whatever <laughs> right. the, the dialogue is. Yeah. But there's no way it could be stimulating because he's a super intelligence, <laughs> right? It's like, is it, right? It could right. not have been challenging. So it's like, it's just this empty pleasantry coming from the HAL 9000. Also prescient, by the but, way, that an IBM computer beats a, a human being. Um, it's interesting that it, like it also said something incorrect. Like we don't know, we never know Hal's motivations for pretty much anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Hal's, uh, after praising Dave's sketches, Dave Bowman's sketches on the hibernating people, says, like, I've been wondering if you've had second thoughts about this. And Hal says, I've never freed myself from the suspicion that there's something very odd about this mission. Mm-hmm. And of course, Bowman re- Applies in this very blank, non-committal way, like everybody does. Um, but then Hal says there are strange stories, there are rumors about something being dug up on the on the on the moon. And now, like we later find out, Hal knows the deal. Yeah. So I don't know what he's up to here. And then he says, "Sorry, it's a bit silly." And this is where he says, right here, "Oh, uh, there's a, a, a fault in the AE35 mm-hmm. unit. Um, it's going to be a hundred percent failure within." 72 hours, Bowman's like, oh, crap, I guess we got to go get it. 
And it turns out that when they go get it, they don't discover that there's anything wrong with this piece of equipment when they come back. And Hal says, I, you know, like, I can't, there's no way I can't be wrong. Um, but then also there's a HAL 9000 on Earth that I guess mm-hmm. ran some kind of simulation and also found that there was no fault in it, that it was not going to yeah. uh, uh, stop working in 72 hours. And, and the HAL 9000 on Earth s- declares that the, the HAL 9000 with them is, has made an error. Yeah, yeah has made so, an error. Yeah, and that's declared in front of HAL. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's again one of these weird moments where they're talking about Hal in front of Hal, and now they're talking. To, <laughs> now they're saying that Hal's yeah. unreliable. Right. And then Hal is like, "I hope you don't." You know, this is puzzling. He says, right. "But yeah. uh, uh, it, it has to be attributable to human error." Yeah. He says, right. "He well, says well, this, this is the situation where it can't actually be attributable to human error because we've got another Hal nine thousand right. saying." But then when he says, "Quite honestly, I wouldn't worry." about myself about that to frank right. it really sounds like a, a threat at that yeah. point you know yeah uh by the way Creepy, i found yeah. the best piece of acting to be <laughs> in that scene where they're testing out the unit you know there's like a little mm-hmm. transistor panel and everything that they're touching is working right and he looks up to you know i think dave looks up to frank and is like expresses this yeah. deep bit yeah. like befuddlement where it's like that's their first inkling yeah, yeah, we got a problem. Something's yeah. wrong here. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So there's like three possibilities, essentially, is that Hal has made a mistake. And, and what we're watching is the drama of Hal trying to reckon with that. Hal has lied about it or that Hal is telling the truth. And it really is broken because we never mm-hmm. see it 72 hours later. We never get to that. Um, and there is something. Um, I want to go back before we move on. I wanted to go back to this other point, which just struck me, which is strange which so the 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 piece of great acting you flagged dave the um what it communicated is okay if if this super intelligent computer makes one mistake we've got it we have to we have to kill it right i mean this this is a disaster right right? that look was like the we're fucked yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, and then and then it becomes explicit when they talk about you know what like you know when they get into the pod and try to have a conversation uh, without Hal hearing, um, and so but what's interesting about that is that's not how we relate to human intelligence. It's like if we were hanging out with John von Neumann, right, and and we and, and he made a mistake, we wouldn't think, oh my god, we got to kill this guy. <laughs> right, like, right. this, this is a problem. He's not a hundred percent reliable. Well, if John von Neumann's systems were keeping you alive, we might feel that way. You know, if if you were right. sort of like uh, a float, but, but, in but space. It, it just seems somehow strange. It's not only not a hundred percent. You can't. It's not that you cannot be a hundred percent confident in it. It's that it it just becomes um, just totally untrustworthy on some, on some level. Like like anything. It's like a, it's a categorical difference between a hundred percent and anything less. Yeah, and yeah. and well, yeah. it's built itself as incapable of error. Yeah, and yeah. So yeah. that just opens the door. Okay, we haven't figured out. The, the laws of right. possibly or it has and it's deliberately lying and making it seem like it's making an error and this is a deep a deep problem because we have we have psychological theories about why if you sam lie to me or you make a mistake like i, I have a, a sort of reliable understanding of what it means like i can tap into your why you might be motivated to lie to me or how it could be that your performance you know, you, you, either your competence or your performance was was wanting in this particular situation. 
they don't have that with Hal. Neither do we. So it's like we we're imputing motivation, but like it's completely unclear where that motivation would come from. You know, it's mm. it's really puzzling. Yes. Um, one thing I want to say about the chess game that I, I meant to say is the other possibility is that what he was doing there <clears throat> uh, was testing how quickly um, was it Dave playing chess? I think so. Yeah. yeah. How quickly yeah. Dave would give in to Hal when he he didn't even question right. that it was made into, um, and he he believed it. He bought it. So it could have been Hal testing the waters to see will they trust me if I tell them. Yeah. yeah, then that means that Hal is already like set setting this plan in motion at that at that point. I, I will say that I my original way of viewing it, really up until these last couple of times, is Hal really does is benevolent in the sense that it's programmed to serve humans. That's what he says. Any conscious entity, it's the highest hope for any conscious en- entity, and really believes that it's incapable of error. And once it's demonstrated that Hal makes an error. Like Hal can't handle that. Like Hal can't handle the uh, the idea of it. So it's not just the humans who are worried about it. Hal then becomes mm. a- everything starts to collapse within Hal, and then Hal goes into more desperate survival mode. But up until that point, Hal has been sincere. I, I will say that now that doesn't seem too plausible to me. Dan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think my the, the the interpretation that I've always sort of had was that Hal went crazy, right? Hal lost yeah, it. Once, it fu- yeah. once Hal found out that it yeah. was, that he was capable of error. Now I'm, yeah, I'm thinking, no, this is a plan that he's setting into motion. And that, that plan yeah. uh, may have come from whatever happened to Hal in the monolith. Maybe Hal really started feeling after the monolith. Um, right, and that's the leap forward. Yeah. Pure, mm-hmm. like, sentience, theory of mind, yeah. all of that. Well, he, he clearly has existential concerns because he doesn't want to get switched off. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing that's so provocative when they, so, when they talk about how they're going to, you know, pull off his, pull his higher order brain offline and just get the, I forget how they refer to it, but the, you know, the, his. Yeah. Like his, the subsystem. Uh, limbic, limbic yeah. system, you know, it, it, it continues to work. I mean, they, they, they talk about how they're going to essentially vivisect him <laughs> yeah. and he overhears it and that's, you know. And it's the first time you get a distinction between the two, like, characters. Like, they've both Mm -hmm. been just crewmen that are fairly interchangeable. But Frank is clearly more skeptical, more suspicious, more... And when they go into the pod so that Hal won't hear them. Uh, Is that why he killed uh, Frank first? I think so, yeah. Um, That Frank is the one that's like, you know, and, and... Dave Bowman is much more reluctant about it. He eventually agrees. And Dave Bowman is the one that says, like, I don't know how, how he's going to feel about that <laughs> right. uh, if we try to turn him off. Nobody's ever done that before. But, yeah, that scene is so cool. And, you know, you just... I, I, I can't remember if I knew that Hal was lip-reading the first time. But once you know that that's what's going on, just, like, the shot is so... Like, it's, they're doing this right in front of Hal. What is right. wrong with them? Yeah, well, that, you know? that, was a, that was a mistake that is somewhat inexplicable, and I guess it never occurred to them. But he, they tell Hal to rotate the pod <laughs> yeah. into a position where he can then see <laughs> yeah. them talk. Yeah. You know, they get in, and their, their, their comms are still switched on, and they say, he says, I think it's Dave, says, rotate the pod. And he, he rotates the pod so that their window is facing Hal, yeah. and then he turns the comms off. And then says something else like rotate the pod. Yeah, yeah. To, t- and it, to test and, it out. And Hal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then Hal and Hal can't hear them. Right. But I mean that and that's the most diabolical 
piece of deception yeah. that he <laughs> yeah. could he could decide not to follow their instructions so as to pretend that he can't totally he can't hear yeah, them totally yeah, yeah. which yeah. when you know and what's gonna happen yeah. you're like fuck no like the window's no, right no, there no no what are you doing you <laughs> fucking morons like yeah. jesus like, the hell is right there yeah and yeah and then there's this shot of their lips of their and lips. like the <clears throat> then you see like hal is actually reading their lips yeah. and then just yeah. intermission uh, right right there is so great I, yeah it's brilliant like like you tamler i always uh try to remember whether I knew they were lip, whether they whether hell was lip reading. And I think we always knew because he does it so it, well. I mean, sw- and he switches back and forth he, between the lips and he shows know. Hal's little light sort of like pulsating. I think that it's hard not to infer that. Um, but he does it so well without, you know, without saying talk about show, don't tell. Yeah. So then now we have like Hal versus, the crew and Frank goes oh, out. Actually, we, we missed one beat, which I found really um, enjoyable uh, and and pretty naturalistic. That the so so they're, they're debriefing Hal about how you know how this error or or possible error uh, should be thought about, and they reach you know an impasse. And but clearly they're freaked out, and so yeah. Dave turns to Frank and says. Oh, Frank, would you join me in the pod for you know, <laughs> yeah. check on right. a control system that is malfunctioning? Yeah. And, yeah, right. but he, and he tries to sound as nonchalant as possible, but they, he just can't quite bring it off. Right. And, and so, like, like totally. the, the, the the prospect of trying to deceive a super intelligent AI in real time <laughs> who is um, omnipresent is just so hopeless. You know, and it's just, it's so great to see just that, that depiction of Actually, it. Actually, it is close yeah. to comedy. It's like a sitcom yeah. moment where you're like, uh, uh, Jack, you yeah. know, Three's Company, right. like, can I see you in the kitchen, yeah. Jack? Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, just so hopeless from the start <laughs> yeah. that they were going to get away with that, you know. Yeah. Um, Su- Suzanne Summers might have well been in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the plan is, the surface plan is to put it back, the unit back and see if it fails. Yeah. Hmm. And if it does fail, then they'll um, then they'll turn turn it Hal off. And Hal, at this point, as Frank is going in, this is such a awesome scene where Frank goes out, and we've been set up for this. We know what has to be done to like uh, get this unit. You have to go out in the pod. You have to then leave the pod and go out into space with the oxygen tube, I guess. And um, <clears throat> And then you see after Frank is out, the pod turning, and then these, the the like little claws of the pod <laughs> heading towards Frank, and then it, you know like you don't see anything like what the pod does, but you then when you're looking at Dave Bowman who's in a control room and like on one of the screens you just see Frank just hurtling out into God. space uh, with yeah. no thing, and it's just so chilling and so well done, yeah. so awesome. Yeah. It's uh, I re this time I kept rewinding to see like, did I miss like the you know like the, the show the, like the claws the coming in? Nope, you just see him just the, the desperation with which he's grabbing at his tubes is actually mm-hmm. very yeah. disconcerting. And when the pod turns, it's like coming right at us. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, and, that that scene provoked a a really old memory, which I I it, this is a completely personal experience here, but the um. I realize I, I almost never have vivid, you know, deep childhood memories. I mean, it's like I, I live my life as though you know I came online at you know age thirteen or fourteen, uh, for the most part. But I, I realize now I had a, as a young kid I had a coloring book that had those pods. It had various pages of like I think dystopian movies. So it had like you know Brave New World <laughs> and the Island of Doctor Moreau and but one the the two thousand and one 
page was was one or one of the pages was one of those pods that I spent some time coloring, and I, I don't know what, what age I was, so but funny. but it was just a flash memory from childhood during that scene. That's so funny. never happens. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then Dave Bowman does something somewhat human. He goes out to get uh, Frank's body. Um, <clears throat> risky. He goes out risky at this point, um, and he also doesn't take a space helmet. Yeah. Which, you know, like I'm very on record as being against bicycle helmets, but <laughs> I think sp space helmets you should take. You know what I'm, um, I mean? Even I will admit that. But he goes out in the pod and gets Frank's body um, in the claws and then turns back. But Hal's not letting him. Yeah. Although not in the in the the smaller, more articulate claws. Just he just uses the big arms. <laughs> right. He doesn't use the hands. He uses the arms, which is kind of interesting. It's like yeah. it's kind of ungainly the way he right. grabs the he body. Uses the big lobster hand or whatever. Like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and you get this very this this is great sound here. This like bong chick, chick, like you get yeah. like these beeps, these loud kind of abrasive beeps. Um, Actually, and, that, that's I, I remember noticing that and wondering why the hell would there be beeps that abrasive like what mm -hmm. functional purpose is served by, by making it that unpleasant to fly the pod at the, you know toward this target maybe uh, it's like frank's perspective i mean sorry dave bowman's perspective at this point mm -hmm. he's like freaked out uh, and all these sounds are like he's just paranoid i don't know yeah. his question. acting his acting in all those scenes is is really great where he, cause it's, it's super restrained but super mm -hmm. uptight yeah you know, and, and yeah it's, it's it's really yeah you believe i mean yeah. you believe Perfect. that somebody yeah. trained to deal in emergency situations would yeah. behave in like this like yeah yeah and then like so he asks hal to open the door and and at first hal's just not responding and then he's like do you read me hal do you read me and then finally is i love the choice of not responding at first but yeah. then responding like and then and then pro basically promising never to respond again <laughs> like like oh i forget how he says it but like this conversation serves no purpose and yeah. then you, you just know that yeah. you, you're going to be in the presence of a super intelligent <laughs> ai that can hear you but is right. is never going to be tempted to respond again yeah. you could listen to your 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 protestations you know, for yeah. a thousand years. And just... I, I took it this time as like, he's blocking him on Twitter. Kind of. <laughs> right. yeah. It's just he's like, muted. You're, you have no yeah. access to that uh, person anymore. He doesn't even have to block. Anymore. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like, there's no yeah. cognitive dissonance. Right. You know, right. You, just, you can hear it all and never respond. Right. Yeah. Right. The open the pod bay doors, Hal, is so iconic. That if you, if yeah. you can ask, if you have an Alexa, just ask it to open the pod bay doors and it gives you a cool answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh really? I, I don't have one. But. I don't have an Alexa, but I, I imagine I Siri have, will do something maybe, similar. Yeah, I don't know. A mini Hal, just <laughs> exactly. in your house, reading, like reading my lips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's this, like an amazing scene of him going into the monolith. I mean, sorry, going into the, the airlock, um, like the, the airlock. airlock and, yeah. Yeah, and right. apparently this is very much in line with the science of it. Like Kubrick did a ton of research about how, whether yeah, that would be possible. That's surprising that I, I didn't realize, I guess there was some common assumption that you couldn't survive even a few seconds of exposure to the vacuum of space. But yeah. um, I just I think that's not thought to be true. Yeah, I think right? that's right. It's yeah, super right. cold. It's like being, it's being on, you know, super Everest for a few seconds. Yeah, I always had this, the image from Total Recall of Arnold on Mars when he takes off his helmet and oh, just and immediately explodes. explodes or something. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's cool, you get this kind of wide shot and you see like the small pod and the big ship and like facing off and it really is like a David versus Goliath yeah. at that point. Mm -hmm. Like, you know. 
uh, he lets Frank go because he has to, to to operate the emergency door. Yeah, yeah, um, that's sad. All for naught. He needs to let that go to right. get to the next stage. And, you know, th- there's no other time, I think, to talk about this, but uh, I just want to say that the, the colors, the uniforms, even yeah, the, cl- kind, yeah. like, the colors are so great. Um, mm-hmm. But that's... And so 60s. Yeah. And it's such a and, 60s style everywhere. And yeah. like you were saying, it's retro-futuristic because it's still believable that it's yeah. the future. Um, I, I read at some point a, a whole article on, or maybe watched a whole video on the design of the suits. So like, he, you know, he actually got people to design futuristic suits mm-hmm. and those suits weren't weird and jarring. They're not wearing space pajamas like in Star Trek. These, they're like right. cool suits. Like they're the suits that I yeah. would wear. Um, and they're, they're actually close. To, I mean, they're not realistic for the time, but they're pretty close to the, the SpaceX suits oh, in terms yeah. of like, like so cool. form factor, so which cool. it probably really influenced. Yeah. The yeah. So it could be a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy, yeah. right? Yeah. So you, you, you envision the future and then you've got yeah. some future company uh, deciding to. And use. I was like, I was also referring to the um, dress suits that they wear in the, like mm-hmm. he had oh, a, yeah. designers just come in and design all of that clothing. Um, and of course had a lot of opinions about how it ought to look. Yeah. You, you mentioned this earlier, but then when the sound kicks oh, in, like so you've got, like it's such a great use of silence yeah. and, and just these beeps sometimes and then pure silence, but then breathing, it all kicks in. Breathing and heartbeat. You can hear breathing heartbeat. and heartbeats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then when he's in the ship, like then like the tables have turned like pretty much uh, like Hal starts out confident. Like, just what do you think you're yeah. doing, Dave? Yeah. Um, and like, I think I'm entitled to an answer to that question, but then slowly gets desperate and soon is just begging for his life, you know, like, uh, remind me, it has, Hal has already disconnected life support it, on the room. Yeah, oh it, yeah. While there, he's in the pod. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, God. and we That's see another, just, like the, you know, that we get these great readouts of like all of their vital signs and, and we sort of al- see. Although one of those readouts, it seemed also superfluous. You see the readouts, you see the telemetry on their heartbeats and, and respiration and everything, and that that's all fine. But then you see these prefab uh, signs. It's just like these Helvetica signs that have been made in advance. And and the final one is life systems terminated. So like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Why would yeah. you have had a life systems terminated sign? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's like maybe the, the, it's like a light that if you turn it on, it'll shine through the light. Is it? Is that right? Yeah, it, it really looks like a a. a Pre, a pre-made sign, yeah, not yeah, yeah. actual, you know, so that people, type so that people standing type. outside will know that you've pressed the terminate like, life system. Yeah, yeah, basically, you hope to never see that one illuminated. That's <laughs> right. why we built it. <laughs> right. What's kind of interesting once he gets in is that it's also like our sympathy starts to switch sides a little bit. Like he has that kind of like Kubrick stare that like Jack Nicholson will have mm-hmm. in The Shining and, and and Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. You know, the famous Kubrick stare as he's walking through, and then you just start all of a sudden like you start to feel really bad for Hal I'm still committed to the mission and all of that and it's all just so futile it's so hopeless at this point but you've but the desperation of it it's like a trapped animal like you feel mm-hmm. bad for it and well, one, yeah. one thing just occurred to me I didn't think about this when watching it but uh, so Dave puts on another helmet from a mismatched helmet from another suit and then but I was just thinking well why does he's in he's in this the spaceship now why does he need a helmet but I guess that's because Hal, I guess, could just yes, vent the exactly. atmosphere. You know? exactly, so yeah. The way that he starts removing pieces of, of hardware to slowly yes. kill Hal is distressing. Mm-hmm. And All little rectangles. <laughs> <by the way>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it 
Oh, it's just terrible. It's like, it's like giving, he's giving him brain damage. He's like, start speaking more slowly and please. And he's saying, I'm afraid, Dave. Like, I'm, it's just uh, heartbreaking. I'm afraid, Dave. Also, isn't there a moment where, so Hal keeps trying to engage him in conversation and Dave is saying nothing yeah. as he's yeah, extracting yeah. these modules. Yeah. But then at a certain point, he starts responding. I forget what. He's already kind of regressed to being like the first mm-hmm. computer and his demonstration. Oh, yeah, he, he says, oh, you tell and me the song. Says, yeah, yeah, sing, yeah, yeah, should I sing the song? Right. Shall I sing it for you? He says, yes, Hal, please sing yeah. it for me. That's yeah, right, the right. only thing I think he says. And then and then it's yeah. like, he's, then it becomes like Lenny, you know? He has to like kill like the fire. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best kind of parallel is Lenny. <laughs> like he, he's not, he doesn't feel good about it, right. but he, he, it has to be done. Yeah. And and again, because it's really the only character that has expressed any emotion <laughs> in, like, like, uh, in the whole movie. So he right when he disconnects Hal, he's entering, gets the message he's entered Jupiter space, right? Yes. And yeah, from Haywood, the guy who is right. running the, or at least the messenger of the council. And and, oh, he, yeah. and only then does he get the message now. He's like, okay, now that you're in Jupiter space, we can tell you um, that what yeah. this is all about. There's evidence that alien life uh, has has buried these things uh, four million years ago, and only Hal knew. So, like, what are you thinking yeah. if you're Dave and you know now? Hal actually knew about this. Like, was Hal? Yeah. What was Hal doing? Because I think it's too, I think it's too easy and probably wrong to think that Hal just went crazy. No, I think <laughs> like this kind of almost confirms yeah. that. I, I uh, that the fact that Hal knew what they were doing before and now you could think that the fact that Hal had to carry on deception just messed it up internally because the other Hal doesn't have to do that right this Hal has to be talking to the crew pretending that it doesn't know what they're really going to Jupiter for and maybe that led to the error which led Hal to go crazy you could think that I think that's a plausible way of interpreting it the other way of it having its own agenda from the get-go is also really interesting. You could also uh, look at it as um, the mission is the important thing, and he doesn't seem to get that the humans on the mission are also critical to it. And because humans are prone to error, he thinks there's a chance that they would lead to a failed mission. So he's just doing... Mm -hmm. He's doing as yeah. as directed, like make this mission successful, and then he he sort of susses out that the humans aren't very good at this. So like, I'll make the mission successful, but it's going to require, you know, right. that's the scary eliminating. Yeah, that's the scary error. AI uh, kind of reading. Yeah, I mean that, that's the well, just to broaden the conversation outside the movie for a second. That for me, the, the expectation that we will. Per- will be able to perpetually remain in a cyborg relationship with super intelligent AI seems fairly crazy to me because it's it's at a certain point the the ape you know that, that is us will will be adding nothing but noise to any decision making process. I mean it's like it's not the it will you know this is happening in chess where for some years now you know that the best chess playing individuals on earth have been computers but the best Chess players on Earth have been, you know, so-called cyborgs. You have you have a human grandmaster collaborating with a with a computer that's actually better than he is, but he's he or she is still adding something to the process. Um, but eventually, and I, this is a, this is an argument I had with uh, 
Gary Kasparov when he was on my podcast because he seemed to think that was going to endure forever. Yeah. Right? Like always, there'd, there'd always be room for the human grandmaster. Yeah. There's no way that's true. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just, you just need a sufficiently good computer so that everything you, monkey man, are adding is noise. Yeah. Well, there is a way that there is something like about reality that can't be processed. You just need a better computer. computer. You just well, or, yeah, things I mean, are more then, then, then you're arguing. Yeah. I mean, if, if that were true, then real intelligence, even, you know, chess playing intelligence isn't substrate independent. You need a, you need a, a computer made of meat somehow in the, in the loop to be as good as you can be. Also, like, you could separate chess playing intelligence from other kinds of right. intelligence. Well, so even if we can't contribute anything to yeah. chess anymore, we could contribu contribute right. something else. I do think this movie is wrestling with that exact question. You mm -hmm. know, I, in some ways, I think the Stargate, I view it as transcending that question to some degree, showing that that question is misconceived in some, some fundamental way um, and ultimately arriving at a more holistic kind of way of understanding knowledge and reality, mm. but I guess we can get to there. Um, uh, but I, but I, I think that's the thing that this question is asking. Do we have anything more to contribute or does the next transcendence have to take place by entities that aren't human, um, uh, biologically based, little carbon beings, like yeah. you said, Dave. Right. So let's, let's talk Stargate. <laughs> Can we just, like, he goes out in the pod first, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so after learning that, his, his, you asked, like, from his perspective, like, what do you do now that you learn that? It's not obvious that the thing you do is get in the pod. Was the monolith orbiting Jupiter? Yeah. It seemed like and it. And so was he right? going to get it? I don't know because it's not fully clear. It's not like why it's underspecified. Like what happens, how he gets to the Stargate, everything. Mm -hmm. In my head, canon now, I just say he went out, touched, touched the pod, the Stargate. The pod comes like, and it, here's where the, po the the pod ship looks like a camera, and it comes floating directly towards us. The monolith just passes by mm -hmm. it on like the left. And um, and then you get like the monolith splitting like the alignment of the moon and planets. And right. it's right then that you pan up to the Stargate from that. But the monolith is supposed to be, I guess, some somehow the causal driving force of the Stargate. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's certainly the implication, but it's not like before where there had to be some sort of contact, right. it seemed like. Mm -hmm. no, uh, well, and there's always something going on with, with an alignment. It's not, it's not always the same alignment, mm -hmm. but there is something about seeing the various planets align yeah. with the, right. the monolith. Right. Yeah. You get the sense exactly. that it, it's, it's sort of like contingent upon a particular astronomical event. It's astrology. Cooper <laughs> was deep into astrology. I, I remember, like, I saw this for the first time in, like, 10 or 15 years, like, four years ago, five years ago. And I remember there's some weird shit at the end. But it's still, like, like when I, like, was in the theater and the Stargate scene is happening and, like, how, like, it goes on for, like, yeah. I don't know, nine or ten minutes, just pure abstraction and art and paint and, like, yeah. you know, flashing lights. And we could talk about what all of that means. Yeah. The, the one thing I didn't understand about that sequence, it was all beautiful. And so there's the there's sort of the psychedelic kind of wormhole part of it where you're just, it's all abstract. You're just, you're just going through the kind of competing planes of color. But then after that, there's these, these psychedelic, you know, technicolor 
landscapes yeah. of, yeah. of they, they look yes. like I mean they they could they're almost certainly earth right yeah. but they're so Scotland like, you know, the it turns desert out. and what was that Scotland it turns out oh it yeah. is in Scotland yeah <laughs> so yeah so it's just these you know mesas or whatever and 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 moors and and so you're you're um I didn't understand what was being depicted there in that like like what is that what was that planet supposed to be I yeah we, I took it to be that he, he he popped out of the other side of the Stargate to wherever the aliens like are from yeah so, so that's that's where the aliens <clears throat> yeah hang out as monoliths y- yeah or or that's where you know they launch their monoliths from um right. and and right. where they create baroque hotel rooms <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that's the weird that, that's one of the things as i've been thinking about it a lot is i've been trying to think how it evokes the odyssey and the thing that's confusing about the odyssey homer's the odyssey is that one essential element of it it's not just an adventure and a voyage it is a return home and this is like it just seems like everything is just going forward forward you know like we go to moon then we go to the jupiter and then we go through the stargate and we're some new dimension or something how is that going home but there's one way it is in that like the Dawn of Man sequence, it's all these landscapes and there's no angles and there's no, you know, uh, right triangles and rectangles and everything. And then up till that point, like it's all rectangles and triangles and perfect, beautiful geometric shapes. And when he goes into this landscape now, it's back to a more fluid, flowing, you know, multicolored kind of uh, experience where there's no sharp distinctions between things. And it's like paint and the splats. Like it goes from a more like linear, like first uh, vertical lines and then horizontal, like you're going through these like horizontal doors. And then it just becomes much more fluid. And this makes me think, Sam, of like some of the ways that people on your app and you describe like the flow of experience, like consciousness, awareness, and consciousness and its contents but it's all just part of the same thing made of the same stuff and that's what i thought that this was kind of getting back to with dave now that the problem with that is <laughs> then he okay, lands there's in, the, the, the human zoo. Room. yeah yeah exactly but but i you know like i think there's ways of answering it but that 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 this is like the one parallel between the beginning of the movie and the end is you have these beautiful landscapes you know well, and, what are the chances yeah. that the whole thing is a a merely personal, you know, death sequence in some sense. Yeah. It's like because he's, <laughs> it could, he's you know, rather than the you know the the, the child being, you know, of, of of metaphysical significance for humanity, and we should probably just describe the, the, the actual sequence because we're referring to this child a bunch. But, um, but yeah, it just it, like the his the his experience in that hotel room seems. I mean, it, it is it's, it is a kind of. It's not quite a life review, but it ha- but what he's doing with time there is really interesting. Yeah. Where you're sort of he's he's seeing yeah. his future self, and then the future right. self is 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 looked at, but the past self is no longer there, and it's just very it's, it's a very weird. When he arrives, he's already older inside his right. space suit, yeah. so it yeah, makes you t- think that he's time, been yeah. in that that uh, um, Stargate for a while. So first, when he's in the pod, he's his age. Yeah. But then when he go when he's out in the spacesuit, out of the pod, and the pod is still there, he's yeah, he's he's older. He looks like he's put on like twenty years or something. Yeah. yeah. Um. What do you guys make that of this like confined room? Like it's like a zoo for humans, kind of. It's like a very weird, like the aliens were trying to make him comfortable, but they, you know, it's like they they didn't have the most updated. <laughs> They fucked it up with the illuminated floor and the, and <laughs> yeah. 
Greco-Roman art. You can never sleep because of fucking lights. <laughs> I'm inclined not to take all that stuff so literally. And when you said how much of this is in his mind, mm-hmm. Sam, you know, like that's partly like makes me think that that a lot of this is in his mind. Like the thing that he's experiencing is something that is too incomprehensible. But it is weird that he is in this very right. defined area. Yeah, I didn't mean. Area. I, I, I don't mean that we yeah. have to take it literally. I mean, like, why? Even even if we take it symbolically, what is this? You know, it's a it's a room with no doors. There's only a bathroom. Yeah. Uh, there's there's really no way out. And clearly, he he spends an entire life there, whether it's experienced as simultaneous uh, or not. Um, I don't know, but like yeah, no, I, I, you don't get the sense that it's experienced as simultaneous because for each self, because when the when the younger the you know the aged but still younger self in the spacesuit sees the older self sitting at the table eating, uh, then there's it's, it's clear that the like that you're I think you're meant to feel that that older self has been there yeah. that whole time, and when he looks back toward to where he would see the younger self, the younger self isn't there; yeah. he's just now yeah. in the room alone. And, and then, that's how they do it every single time. They pa- it's like they pass off they pass it, the, yeah. the, the, the consciousness to the oh, next no, But what do you make of the broken glass moment? Because that's like the only thing that happens yeah. apart from him seeing the monolith, you know, as the oldest self in the, in the bed. It's very yeah. dramatic in the room. Like, yeah. that, uh, when, when it happens, but I, I have no idea. So this, like, the, what I'm going to say doesn't help the interpretation of the work of art um, as it is. Um, uh, but the actor said that it was his idea to break the glass. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah? Some, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't catch a reason why. But in the in the hotel room... It's just as an excuse to turn around. Oh, uh, okay. Because huh. he turns around after he breaks it, and that's where they see... He sees the... You go to the bed. Yeah, I see. Um, in the huh. hotel room, they cut out a lot of what, what was supposed to be in there. Apparently, there was supposed to be... There were supposed to be like books that when you opened up, the pages were blank. There was supposed to be a Gideon Bible that when you opened it up, the pages were just blank. And it was supposed to yeah. sort of somehow indicate that the aliens had created this room, but you know, had gotten it's like it, a simulacrum. Of, yeah, they'd of got a real. Yeah, they'd gotten. They, they, yeah. They, they, they were props. That they, right. But it seems like something they could have gotten right. Like they're, they're intelligent <laughs> yeah. enough to like if they want to simulate it, they can. Well, it's, you know? maybe so they had only yeah. pictures of hotel rooms, and the pictures would never contain all of the contents of the book. You know. But it's like dreams. I mean, dream, dream, yeah. in dreams, we fail to simulate what's real. <laughs> right. Like, I, I don't know if you know about lucid dream phenomenology, but one of the things that is true, apparently, with lucid dreams, and I think I've only experimented with this once in my life, and it was true there. If you look at text in a lucid dream and look away and then look back at a text, it's never the same. Yeah. Like, the, like we can't hold text stable it's crazy, in, yeah. in, a, in a dream manuscript. Interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that it reminds me of this and when they're seeing it on the moon, it looks like a movie set in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so you would like it was. Gideon Bible, <laughs> like, I mean, it was right, but it's like self-consciously, like certainly on the moon, yeah. it just looks exactly like a movie set with the lights yeah. on the monolith. And, but even in here, it's like, you know, that little detail that they ended up cutting out, but the Gideon Bible with blank pages, that's what you would do on a movie yeah. set. You don't need them to actually be words right. in the book. And it's probably like so i do think it's very at this point gets very meta and maybe somehow Mm. uh, dave bowman has recognized that he is part of some larger you know allegory of a movie like 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 the allegory of realizing that you're being that you're a part of something that what you thought was the universe is actually like a screen i guess you know Mm. 
and you're in it. Yeah. So, okay, can we talk about the the star child? I, mm-hmm. This this will always flummox me, and I think that it's it's good because all of the details that Kubrick strips out allow for us to just play with interpretation. Um, but I, I take it that everybody assumes that the star child is Dave reborn. That makes sense. That, yes, because one, it like yeah. as he dies, it then turns into a, the fetus of the star child on the on, bed. It's on the bed, yeah. right? Um, so this is an evolutionary, and, and then and then the star child is now in orbit in, in orbit over Earth, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, I mean, I, I don't know if if the star child represents just him at that point, or if it's just kind of a new uh, reboot for humanity, yeah. or or it's a rebirth of some kind, but it's not clear. Yeah. I'd forgotten. So, so, so we actually see the infant on the bed, kind of floating yeah. above, right? And, but and is, then, the old, is the old is the old Dave st- still in the bed, or is he gone? He's gone. No, like this is right after he's reached for the monolith. So right. like, he's on the okay. bed. He's like clearly dying. It's the same breath thing, but now he, like the breath is getting slower, and then uh, stops after he reaches okay. out for the monolith. And then, then all of a sudden, the, yeah. the star child is on the on the bed, like hovering around it. And then we go through the monolith. Like it's mm-hmm. it's almost like it's the point of view of the, the star child going through the monolith and then it cuts to the famous hovering, you know, orbiting, yeah, hovering, right. whatever it's doing over there. Actually, Earth. I don't know anything really about Kubrick. I don't know if he had any Eastern influence, but I mean, this is it's, it's yes. certainly amenable to a, a Bardo scene. I mean, the Bardo in 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 uh, Tibetan Buddhism, in particular, uh, is considered this this interval between lives, and it's this you know psychedelic passage uh, where you have mm. you know various opportunities to recognize uh, you know what you should recognize, so as to not be reborn in some lowly place. Uh, and if you can't if you can't deal with all that psychedelic chaos, you're just then helplessly you know re- reborn you know somewhere. Um, Hmm. So I don't know if he, if he was reading anything Eastern there. It, it, it could be some kind of Bardo depiction. That sounds right. Like, because it fits a lot of the things. Also, like, we're seeing humans who just keep being reborn to the point where they're just, all their aliveness has been stripped away from them almost. And then, like, Dave Bowman is the first person to actually do this correctly and 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 reach this new stage, whatever that is. Um, through that rebirth process. He doesn't mess it up. It ends on an optimistic note, I think, you know, mm-hmm. this rebirth. Um, I take, you know, It's not like it's a monster. Um, this Thus spake yeah. the same music that started. Yeah, the yeah there's something triumphant about the, the music. Yeah. Right? So it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it's, it's... It's success. It feels successful. Something yeah. was successful. So like the, you know, let's let's be literal for a moment. The aliens powered up Dave and sent him back to earth. Um, and, and now he's like this, um, you know, very like next stage of evolution human. Well, speaking of speaking, it never occurred to me that there's some sequel in mind, but there was a sequel. There's right. 2010, which I've never seen. Not either. I've never read either. The, if, I don't, I'm not even sure that was a book, but I never read the novel for 2001. And, uh, I've never seen 2010, which, uh, but I don't think Kubrick had anything to do with it. Okay, uh, but is yeah. is it informed by Arthur C. Clarke's writing about this? Or I think so. Huh. Yeah, because Arthur C. Clarke did have it. Is it in the novel that the Star Child? I don't even know what to make of this. That the Star Child just sets off nuclear weapons. It was in the. It was in the original script screenplay, screenplay right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, if the yeah, Star Child the sets off nuclear weapons on Earth? Yeah, well, yeah. it sets off the... <laughs> so that, that is not as optimistic yeah, as... Yeah, no, no. What it does is, right. um, if if uh, you recall, the when the bone turns into the satellite, that's a nuclear mm-hmm. weapon. And we actually get shots of other uh, satellites, other nuclear weapons orbiting. We don't just see the one. And so I think the idea is that the Star Child detonates them all, sort of like to get rid of them, not to destroy uh, oh. not to destroy earth, but rather to, to, so, so the move, the optimistic view here would be that the star child has brought peace to an aggressive, uh, race. Like yeah. Stage one, the dawn of man was war and everything, the we- what weapons and technology brought and stage two is now star child come to bring peace. I thought it was actually wanted a clean slate to start with. He was just gonna so like the flood, get, like the biblical flood. Just exactly. Like, that's what I, that's, that is. Yep, that's maybe, I maybe, yeah. maybe. But you know, like Kubrick, this got got junked early because Kubrick had already ended a movie with um, yeah, that's nuclear right. bombs it, going exactly. off. Um, you couldn't do that again. Right. So, right. Um, uh, which is yeah, I don't know. Like, and it's also not clear. This Star Child, it's beautiful. It looks so beautiful, and it stares right at us. But what is it supposed to do? Like, how is it going to be helpful to have this b- yeah. giant child in a bubble yeah. floating above the earth? Like, what? It's it's very. It's like up until now, we can tell a literal plot story. We can sort of make make some conjectures about what uh, yeah. what the you know what, what are the aliens doing? What's Hal thinking? And then here, it's like now we're just in pure symbolism. This is like the birth of man, the, a new birth of man, and and it doesn't matter, you know. The, you know, questions about whether he'll like successfully get out of that sack and land on, on earth. <laughs> like right. just don't, they're just, they just don't work. Cause we're not through the Stargate. So we can't conceive of actually what's going yeah, on. This I is think. the end of our, the visual experience that we've had just had the emotional experience we've yeah. just had. And I think it ends it emotionally for us. I, I'm certainly open to the possibility that Kubrick is not playing 4d chess with us <laughs> and that he, he actually didn't know what he meant by, the ending, you know, like it was, it was visually satisfying. It was, a, you know, but it was not, I mean, get, also given the fact that so much of his process seemed to be having certain ideas that didn't pan out and then he's just taking them away, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, and then editing it into something that is you know, harder to, to parse. But I think that's what he thinks creativity is. And I think the end, I, I see the optimism as it's beckoning us to be creative. It's beckoning human beings to reach their creative capacities. Mm-hmm. And, and and in that sense, it's, it's pretty hopeful. It's saying like, we're capable of something that we currently now can't imagine and conceive of. It's like pass, not passing the baton, but like an invitation mm-hmm. to a to this kind of creativity. Yeah. Right. It's a good emotional ending for the this journey of man. And it's a good, I think, allegory for what, how we should transform ourselves and all these. And, and I think that, um, the removal of detail is, is really what makes this movie stand the test of time because, yeah. um, you know, I saw in one of these videos, I saw a very nice, they were talking about exactly this, about how the openness to interpretation is what makes this such a powerful film. And uh, they showed, this is sort of a trite point, but they they showed a picture of the Mona Lisa and they said, imagine if underneath the Mona Lisa it said, she's smiling because she's thinking about her secret lover. You would just be like, oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah Kubrick says that in the Playboy interview. You know, she's Or because she has rotten teeth. That's why it's such a small <laughs> right. little, and right. he's like, that would ruin the whole experience of, of, mm-hmm. of seeing the Mona Lisa. And he really does think cinema is like that. It is a visual 
art form. It's sim- it's not something that you should spell out or articulate, and he never really does. He does more than he does yeah, in this movie. I, I guess I, yeah. I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't think that's a requirement of a great film that stands the test of time. If you think of a film like The Godfather, yeah. you know, one yeah, or two, yeah. it's not it's not leveraging inscrutability, right? You know what you think happened yeah. and why it happened. And, you know, it's just, it's there is a closure to it. Yeah. It's why- yeah, so it's, it's not trying to it's do that. Bu- it, it might yeah. be why this movie or this kind of movie could stand right. the test of time, as you were saying, like, you know, so th- mm. these other uh, other movies of this nature. Um, yeah. And I think he, you know, obviously not even Kubrick thinks that about all movies. Uh, he thinks, you know, you, I think you had mentioned the killers in-, in which I've, I still have never seen. Yeah. I just heard it. Great. The, ki- the, the killing. killing. Sorry. Uh, the killing. The, the yeah. killer is another yeah. noir. Um, which is a great noir. And it's, you know, it's very plot heavy. Um, yeah. And it's not trying to leave yeah, a lot of stuff open right. to interpretation. But he created something different here that I think is, is what he was trying to show is the power of film in its nonverbal and purely emotional mm-hmm. form. And it's interesting that within that, we get a really cool story about an artificial intelligence and like a crew mm-hmm. trying to get on this mission. Yeah. It's like a pr- pretty amazing, heavy story. Like uh, maybe that's the, well, the Arthur C. Clarke. I, I must say, now that I think of it, that approach r- really can fail because I, I think the, sh- I don't know when the last time you guys saw The Shining was, but I just watched that with my, well, maybe a year or so ago, I watched it with my uh, oldest daughter and it just, it really does not work as a scary movie. I mean, this, you know, J- Jack Nicholson's great and there are great moments in it and it's, it's visually beautiful, but the attempt to produce scares with this, with this sort of mood pieces, like the blood coming out of the elevator yeah. and they just kind of, it, 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 it's just too random. It's like, it's not following an internal logic that is scary. So my, my daughter, it was complete, like my daughter was just, just, just vilified <laughs> it really. I mean, like, it was amazing without <laughs> prompting from me. It's like, I, I've been corrupted by my own daughter. Like it just does not work for... For this generation, as a scary. Well, movie. I, I like. Yeah, I don't agree with that, and my daughter doesn't agree with your daughter. Do like, you actually think it's scary? I think it's terrifying. I've always thought it was terrifying. But did you think I like think the, like the blood? By by what logic? No, 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 is no not blood that. Coming out of the not, not the blood coming out of the elevator. More just the smaller moments of the, him, well, yeah, the, sm- like, yeah, the so, smaller moments of him losing his what's mind. Making, yeah, and the chill, what's, what's making him go crazy? The interaction with the with the butler and the bartender and that, yeah, you that stuff is great. Him, yeah. 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 Well, and, and seeing him in the photo at the end is very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, so, so but again, a completely yeah. open-ended, yeah. Right? right? Like, we don't know what that means uh, because they haven't shown that people are literally being reborn. You know, you get the sense from the... Anyway, well, that's a yeah, whole yeah. different conversation. I, I we don't have time for another Kubrick film. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter actually wrote a whole essay on The Shining and Kubrick oh, yeah? and, cons- and conspiracy theories relating to Kubrick. Yeah. Well, there's a crazy there's, documentary just about The Shining, right, for, for people who've devoted their yes, lives to yeah. it. Yeah. Room 237. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did an, we an episode, episode on, uh, oh, yeah? on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm not going to chime in with my opinion on The Shining because we need to get done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what do you think about pragmatism? Yeah. <laughs> I have a pragmatic view of The Shining. <laughs> but there is kind of, remember when you said like we were innocent in the opening sequence yeah. uh, bef- and like the tapirs could just like mm-hmm. uh, share the grazing with us and then like it seems like we've recaptured some sense of the innocence too the mm-hmm. wonder and the, yeah. and we're not so certain where everything is true anymore like how like we took that to its logical extreme and now we've gone beyond it 
you know, I mean, there's a lot made of the accounts of humanity sort of like uh, becoming self-aware. And uh, this movie might be saying, you know, humans, the moment they got the monolith, that's what unlocked their, their awareness. Like, like a Garden of Eden story, like eating, eating the, from the tree of the knowledge mm-hmm. of good and evil. It's only then that they noticed that they were naked and they were ashamed. And here it's like after the monolith, that's when he gets the insight that he could use these tools. Um, and uh, so it, it, and maybe just humans become more self-aware and maybe the monolith had the same effect on Hal, made Hal self-aware. Um, maybe even just by mistake, like the monolith was never supposed to interact with an AI and it made the AI self-aware and the AI started to have like violent impulses. Um Maybe this is all a story of the monolith just cleaning up its mess. <laughs> right, and, and now, and us, now it, pre- it presents us like a brand new, a brand yeah. new return to innocence. Yeah, return to yeah. innocence. And because you can't have, if you want imagery that connotes innocence, like a baby is the best you're going to do. You know, hmm. a floating bubble baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the one one that declines to set off nuclear weapons. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just by like thinking about yeah. them. <laughs> uh, no, it's such a yeah, it's 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 such an odd but also just magnificent way to end the movie. Yeah. And also just it sta- like the baby staring right at us. That's what I mean. It's like this invitation right. like of some kind mm-hmm. or some sort of like to be reborn. Know, it's imparting something on the viewer at that point. And then like written and produced by Stanley yeah. Kubrick. Yeah. yeah. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Just, impossible to exaggerate how much the sound design and music do for this movie. It's really it's like the main character in the in the movie. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't even like we touched on some of the yeah. things, but uh, I, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's it the the amount of work that it takes that it would have taken to put all of this together in such a perfect way. If Stanley Kubrick was a dick, I'm happy that that dick existed because because he was yeah. able to put this together. Um, it was worth yeah. it. It was worth it for Shelley Duvall to have like a complete <laughs> nervous <laughs> break, breakdown and traumatized. Did, did, did she really have a nervous yeah. breakdown? Yeah, I mean, he that? was making her. She, she, she seemed like she, she seemed like yeah. she was. Well, that you know, yeah. the thinking is that that's why why he was he was like making her do like 200 takes until she was just like you know completely a Broke disaster and because he wanted the character to be a disaster yeah. <laughs> which is pretty <laughs> fucked up he, and he did that with tom cruise and uh yeah. Oh, yeah and and nicole kidman too but tom cruise especially had some sort of like like mental breakdown during the, the uh, shooting of it at one point interesting it, yeah so he's uh, also, but at the same Scientology time like, he, <laughs> he is he will collaborate with Actors, you know, like oh, yeah. uh, there's a famous story that the actor came up with the idea of the lips reading um, because what they were doing before mm-hmm. wasn't working, and the actor thought he, he was going to get fired. fired. Yeah. But Kubrick show, shows up and with and asks him if he wants a drink, and then like, all right, like how are we going to fix this? And it, you know, at least according to him, he says he came up with the idea of the lip reading. There's another story. I think it was that same actor was saying that um, during the filming of one of the the, the rotating space. Uh, Face. Um, he kept, he was like nervous. So he kept tapping his foot, but the taps were actually causing this, the set to move in a way that was fucking up the filming. And Kubrick just came and put a towel under his foot so he could keep tapping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think I, th- he- I, th- I thought you were going to say he velcroed his foot. <laughs> he gave him painkillers and velcroed yeah. his feet. Too. <laughs> 
apparently, apparently Velcro was used in space uh, for, for real. real. Uh, yeah, like one, in one of our missions, there, there, there was like there was some Velcro uh, attachment to a glove that was on a ladder or something. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's I, I like this about Kubrick because he's such a control freak, freak and everything has to be so precise. But he's a lot more open. He doesn't go in like Hitchcock or like the Coen brothers with exactly knowing exactly what he wants. He like, he kind of feels his way there too. And it's only when, you know, after filming that he kind of puts it all together in his unbelievably meticulous and like intense way. Um, but he's like, the reason he makes them do a hundred takes sometimes also is just trying to figure out what will work. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he's open to suggestions and a kind of collaboration. Yeah, um, when you think of a movie just, a movie like this that required such teams for, for doing like the special effects mm -hmm. and the cinematography, he was still a control freak in the sense that he, you know, he, like what he would do, for instance, to get the lighting right. Um, and he was a perfectionist in that... Uh, if it didn't look right, he didn't use it. Hence the 200 to one ratio for shots. Mm. Um, well, the, the lighting, I, I saw somewhere that the lighting was really unusual here. So, so many of those scenes, like the, the hotel scene, was didn't have normal film lighting. It was all being lit by the set itself. Yeah. And it was super bright. And the, so between takes, the, the actors are walking around with sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, because there's a lot of overexposed shots with these bright lights. And those lights were hot. So like under the under the floor of the hotel room are these these yeah. lights that were so hot that they started mm -hmm. melting the tiles that were being used. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they had to turn them off in between takes because it was... You know, too, just too much. Poor, like, aged Dave. He probably has to spend, like, the first six hours in makeup and then, <laughs> and then he's, go. like, burning his feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I think you're... I think that's... It's true that he didn't start being such a tyrant to actors. But in, this wasn't the right movie, I think, for him to to even be that. Um, but but is that the story on him, that he was really a, a very difficult director to work with because he it's, speed up his actors? It's weird, Sam, because everything I've read is, like, you get these, like people saying he was great like he listened to us like he i uh, you know and then and then with some actors everybody agrees that he does like way too many takes you know he's like doing crazy it's it's like hard it's a difficult shoot but mm. um and then some people have like shelly duvall like had a seem to have a really bad experience but i don't think most of the actors have bad things to say other than like mm. he fucking made me do this 200 times like you yeah know? that's right all right, all right. So we re thank all you right. so much well, sam this was great yeah it wouldn't be a pleasure it I, wouldn't be a sam episode without a three-hour recording session <laughs> exactly <laughs> well i've enjoyed your movie reviews uh from afar as a uh, as a listener for now years so i'm happy to happy to be involved in that we were excited we're excited about having you to talk about this so thanks it seems like a perfect yeah. movie for you uh to get your contribution and input on yeah nice nice well i won't watch it with my daughter wait till she's 42 <laughs> yeah she's gonna say it's boring i guarantee <laughs> yep. she's this only 14, fucking 14. generation yeah. you don't know how i had to mold my daughter's taste from like three years old so that she could hey, not all of us like, are, are yeah. the stanley kubrick of parents <laughs> you're yeah. gonna watch this exactly. hundred times until you appreciate it. Yeah. I allow her to collect. <laughs> Actually, you, it, it occurred to me you should publish a list. I, mean, I, I want a list from you, but whether anyone else would, I, I, I would, I would think they would. A list of of the, the best movies to see with kids if you oh, actually yeah. want to. 
Oh, yeah. see grown-up movies with kids. You know, yeah, yeah. we might not That's be the best guys, arbiters of this because we we both showed our daughters some pretty fucked up shit. <laughs> Full metal jacket. At My daughter was, yeah, was on Tarantino at like nine. <laughs> right, um, yeah. but uh, I don't know. Yeah, it would be a fun. Yeah, that's a good idea, episode, though. Yeah. That would be fun to do. I, like, I just learned. I learned recently that my daughter, who's who's thirteen, turning fourteen, broke free and watched Euphoria. <laughs> I still haven't seen Euphoria. I haven't but seen I, it. I, but Annika and I were at a dinner party. We're having dinner with a, with a, a few people, uh, other parents, and one of us blithely mentioned, mentioned that that um, our daughter had watched Euphoria, and the looks of horror on the other <laughs> grown-up faces. Just told me everything I needed to know about about uh, what she had seen. They're so you judgy. Know, Parents are so judgy. Yeah. You know. I know. It's not like what do they think the movie is going to do? They're going to start doing drugs and be like have, having gonna, sex with with yeah. guns held to their head. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, 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 uh, you know, I had a yeah. religious uncle who who once told me that Hollywood had an agenda to to make us gay by showing us like gay stuff, and and I remember turning to him and being like, "Has it ever tempted you? Like, I feel like <laughs> I feel like if it's tempting." Also, you know, <laughs> What movies are you, is he watching? I don't know. My beautiful yeah. laundrette or something, you know? They, <laughs> He's just like, they're too sexy? Are they too sexy? Like, is this... <laughs> He's one of those guys who thought that gay marriage would, would undermine the institution of straight marriage. Yeah, yeah Because right. why? It'd be so tempting to be gay married? Is that yeah. the problem? They would take yeah. all the divorce lawyers. It's a real problem. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's fucked up my marriage. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Sam. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Just a very bad wizard.